Bashem Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shiru Torah, Buchim Vayim. We are back here on our Stump the Rabbi Wednesday Shiru. After a few Divrei Torah, you guys will ask some questions, and Bezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us the answers. Tonight's Shiru will go to a Refuah Shlema. Will be for a Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Sara Bat Anat, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sara. Avimori David Ben Esriya, Imimorati Doris Bat Shora, and also for that Slacharaba for Marsha Bat Julian, all of Am Yisrael, all the righteous Noahides, all the wonderful people that are looking to do tshuva and are watching our shurim and are contributing to help us get these shurim to as many people as possible, whether it's by donating money or their time or skills or everything else. Uh, so Bezat Hashem, Naseh Natsliach. Tonight uh, we have a uh, really interesting shiu. Uh, trying to understand the divine judgment. There are many questions that people ask me about it, uh, you know, different things in regards to judgment, and Bezat Hashem will try to use different aspects of the Torah to really truly understand. Uh, before that, just to give you guys a update, we are a week away from the Gehenom Shiu, the Gehenom uh, uh, movie that's coming out, Bezat Hashem. There's still uh, room for anyone that wants to contribute to the uh, movie to help us share it everywhere, market it in different places. Uh, anyone that donates $1,800 or more will also get uh, USBs once they come out in about uh, six months or so. Uh, you'll get a bunch of USBs uh, that you can give out. In essence, you're getting uh, your, your money back. Uh, but more importantly, you'll be part of an uh, endless amount of people that are going to be able to watch this uh, film uh, in different ways, not just on the internet. Uh, so uh, just to encourage people to contribute, you can go to genom.org. This is our new website uh, for specifically for the movie. Genom is spelled uh, G-E-H-I-N-N-O-M.org. Um, uh, you go over there, you can contribute, or you can go to the campaign specifically that's uh, .com, genom.com. And one of the things we're doing tonight, just for everybody that's watching tonight, uh, and for the uh, until the uh, the movie, uh, we'll um, the we'll pick whoever is actually uh, going to uh, donate. We'll enter a uh, raffle that we have, where one person will win uh, a brand new talit. This is the special taliot that we have uh, on our website from uh, from Israel. These are not just a regular talit. These are $500 talits that have a beautiful uh, atara on them with the uh, diamonds in blue. There's different colors. So this is something that uh, certainly anyone that's familiar with taliot uh, knows it's, uh, these are uh, something very special. Uh, all of them are obviously brand new. They also come with our own uh, new Be'ezat uh, Hashem uh, talit bags and tefillin bag. Uh, so one person will win a free talit over this next week uh, that uh, will contribute to this campaign. In fact, it's uh, uh, the announcement will be made over the next week, but the winner is going to be anybody that's watching it over the next 24 hours, meaning between now and uh, Shabbat, whoever donates uh, to the campaign will enter that raffle and Be'ezad Hashem will uh, choose one and let them know that they want this uh, brand new talit uh, just to... Uh, Give you guys, I guess, let me just undo the whole thing. It's a big talit. Also, one of the reasons why it's more expensive than, you know, a lot of talit that you'll buy in the store 
is not just because of the atara, but also because of the fabric and how it doesn't uh, fall off of your shoulder, which uh, many people find annoying. Uh, so this is one of those special taliot that I found for myself a few years ago, and I figured that might as well try to make it available because I couldn't find it uh, anywhere here in the States. Uh, so one person will win it, and Bezot Hashem, we're looking forward to uh, letting you guys know who won it. And again, it doesn't... Uh, matter how much you donate, whether you donate $50 or you donate $5,000, you'll enter that raffle. Of course, those that uh, donate more will uh, be able to uh, uh, be a, a bigger part of the movie, but nonetheless, each person uh, will be included in the raffle. We don't, we don't want to exclude anyone. So that's one thing that Bezal Hashem will have. Also, as I mentioned the other day, that uh, we have now a new uh, uh, campaign that we're starting uh, for a free gift for subscribers to our channel on YouTube. Uh, each time we reach a new thousand subscribers, uh, we're going to announce a, a free gift for somebody, one of those thousand people or one of the uh, many thousands of subscribers that we have. It doesn't have to be the last thousand subscribers. It could be the first 35 or 36,000 that we already have. Uh, so anybody that uh, subscribes now will enter that uh, raffle and uh, we'll announce, you know, different gifts. One of the gifts that we have is a uh, free chumash, a free stone chumash. This is about 50 or $60 or so. Uh, this is one of the gifts. We also have the Pekia Avot book. That is one of them. And we also have the Taliot that I just showed you. Uh, and a few other things that uh, Bezat Hashem are going to be the gifts that people get. So each one of these gifts is not, uh, you know, a uh, bubblegum. Uh, each one is a substantial gift that uh, somebody will get uh, just for being part of our uh, Kiruv and our, you know, watching our Shulim Baruch Hashem. So, with that being said, we uh, have a uh, title for the issue of Understanding Divine Judgment. Now, the Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, is full of stories about our patriarchs and our matriarchs and the extraordinary lives and difficult tests that they overcame, that they, that they went through all together, and uh, an endless amount of Musar lessons uh, can be learned from them. This is actually the reason why the uh, Sefer Bereshit is called also Sefer Ayashar, which is the, the book of the straight, because our patriarchs and matriarchs were very straight people, uh, and uh, you know all of them were uh, glued to the emet, of the Torah, no matter what the uh, sacrifice had to be. Now, of course, this is also a place where through their lives, through their uh, uh, the things that they went through, we could also learn more about how the divine judgment works, the logic behind it, if you will, because the, uh, the logic of God is not the logic of man. So certainly a person can't just assume that just because something makes sense to them, that's exactly what God is going to do, because many times we've seen in our own lives that what made sense to us was not necessarily what uh, Hashem decided that's going to be. So one of the places that you could actually learn more details about the divine judgment is throughout the Sefer Bereshit, uh, from the lives of our sages, from the lives of our patriarchs and matriarchs, but also from the teachings of our sages about those particular times. And if you uh, look at the Gemara, in uh, Masechet uh, Sanhedrin, it gives us a little bit of a uh, uh, um, uh, small understanding that is going to clarify, be more clear after we finish this shiul, 
once you see the stories, where the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, Daf Ein Aleph, Amud Bet 71b, has the Mishnah. It's a new Mishnah that talks about the Ben Soer Omore, which is a wayward child. Uh, why is there uh, this uh, wayward child, how he's judged very harshly with this 13-year-old boy that uh, uh, did a few things that were terrible, uh, is judged for a death penalty. Now, uh, uh, without going on to all, into all of the details of the Ben Soer Omore, the Mishnah uh, says that the reason why he's judged this way is because let him die while he's innocent and not let him die while he's guilty. Meaning that the way that he's going already with the action, the, the way he's behaving already at this age, uh, which is a relatively short period of time, it's a three-month period of time, uh, the way that he's behaving, certainly this kid is going to be a criminal that's going to murder people, and therefore it's better to kill him already than to let him live. And then the Mishnah goes into the part that I want to discuss, which is the divine logic behind all of it. For the death of the wicked is beneficial to them and beneficial to the world. Meaning that when the wicked people die, they actually benefit from that death. And the world benefits from them dying. For, by, but the death of the righteous is detrimental to them and detrimental to the world. When the righteous people die, it's not good for them. It's certainly not good for the world. The explanation for that is that the when the wicked die, it's better for them because they can't sin anymore. So whatever judgment they have, it stops over there, more or less, uh, unless they left a lot of bad fruits that are going to continue causing more people to sin. But the world also benefits from their death uh, simply because they're uh, not causing more harm to people. The opposite is the case with the righteous, the righteous that are collecting good deeds every day. When they leave this world, they can no longer collect more good deeds like they did when they were alive. Certainly, if they left good fruits in this world, they collect more good deeds. But again, it's not as much as when they're alive, when they're able to pray, when they're able to learn more and so on. So it's a detriment to them when they die. And also it's a detriment to the world where their merit protects the people. When a righteous person is alive, his merit actually protects the world, protects the people. Uh, Further, the Mishnah goes and uh, says, wine and sleep for the wicked are beneficial to them and beneficial to the world. But for the righteous, it's detrimental to them and detrimental to the world. Dispersal for the wicked is beneficial for them and beneficial to the world. But the righteous, it's detrimental to them and detrimental to the world. Assembly, meaning gathering together for the wicked, is detrimental to them and detrimental to the world. But for the righteous, it's beneficial for them and beneficial for the world. Tranquility for the wicked is detrimental to them and detrimental to the world. But for the righteous, it is beneficial for them and beneficial for the world. Now, of course, we're going to get into the details of why it's this case. Uh, But the first thing that a person would say when they look at this superficially and have not learned Gemara, uh, they're going to say to themselves, wait a minute, but the, the, the wicked people, uh, them dying, now they can't do tshuva anymore. It's a, uh, how could it be positive for them? How could it be beneficial for them? Uh, you, know, how, you know, the righteous people, if, they're, uh, if they die, they go to heaven. Why would that be detrimental? So the, the common logic would literally be the opposite of what the Torah actually says. 
so it's important for a person to understand that the, the common logic is the opposite of the torah unless a person has glued themselves to the torah to the talmidei chachamim their natural logic will be the opposite of the torah so this is the reason why also when we hear different things uh and see different uh, heretical behavior that whether it comes from rabbis or it comes from other people and we rebuke it there are always going to be a few people that say that rebuke us instead telling us oh how can you say about this rabbi that is bringing a christian missionary to his shul it's not nice he's just looking for unity how can you say about this santa claus rabbi manis friedman that has uh, interviews with zonot on a regular basis and says things against the torah he's just looking to be friends with everybody he's welcoming how can you say this and how can you say that now of course for those of you that have been watching my lectures for for a long time you already know the logic behind it and of course you realize there is no dean of lashonara when you're speaking against wicked people in order to protect the public but needless to say that the common logic out there is the opposite of that the common logic behind there is simply in line with the wicked people whether it's intentionally or unintentionally is irrelevant the key is to understand that the common logic of a person that's not glued to the torah is going to be the opposite of the torah and this is one of the things that a person needs to understand and we'll learn it through this week's parasha parashat vaishlach first and foremost in parashat vaishlach we see vaishlach yaakov malachim lefanav achiv so yaakov avinu leaves the house of of uh, lavan finally after 20 years of suffering and difficulty he leaves the house of uh, of uh, lavan and he's now going towards his brother Esav and it says uh, uh he's he's um uh he sends uh Malachim he sends angels that's what Rashi says Mamash angels that uh, uh that he's actually sending to go and check out the situation and uh Rashi Rashi says angels Onkelo says he sends ministers but there's no machloket between them it's just that Yaakov Avinu sent both regular people and angels to go check out the situation so then after that we see that these angels and ministers that uh, Yaakov sent um come back we uh, uh we came to your brother to Esav you know they returned and they came back to the brother so obviously we see here there's a superfluous word there's an extra word here why do i need to know that his brother's name is asav i mean obviously we already know that it's not only do we know from the previous parashot but we also know from this parasha as the first verse in the parasha says that he sent them to asav so the first thing that we hear is this is to teach us that later on in the next couple of uh, uh next few verses Yaakov Avinu prays to Hashem he prays to Hashem and he says again the same type of language where Yaakov prays to Hashem and says please Hashem save me from the hand of my brother save me from the hand of Esav why this again this what seems to be extra words very simple first you have to learn that just because he's your brother doesn't mean he's your friend in fact in this particular case it's to remind you that Esav is your brother but he's also your enemy and he's much more dangerous 
when he's pretending to be your brother than when he shows his true colors. This is like, for example, the Christian missionaries of the world today, the, uh, the, the Hebrew-Israelite movement of today, and all of the other types of people that are trying to say that they are looking for the better good of the Jewish people, the better good of, uh, of even their own communities, uh, by pretending to act as if they are the savior, they are Yaakov, they are coming at representing the uh, God, but in reality, all of that pretending has to go in line with what our tradition is. Our tradition has specific teachings, but also has specific laws. And one of the laws that we have, the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says to us, is it is an alacha, that's Esav Sonet Yaakov. Esav hate Yaakov. This is a Klal Gadol Torah. This is a very big rule in the Torah. So long as he is connected to Esav, meaning he acts in accordance to what Esav's laws are, not according to our Torah. He's not observant of the seven Noahide laws. He's observant of some new religion that was created over the last couple of thousand years or the last hundred years. He's, a, uh, he's not observant to what the Torah is. He is connected to a sub. He is connected to something that hates Yaakov. So even if he acts like Yaakov, always be reminded he is a sub. Despite the fact that I'll call you my brother, he'll call you my friend, he'll call you whatever he wants to call you, it's important for a person to know that this is the case, that Esav is an enemy. If he's a Christian missionary, if he's a religious person from the church of any kind, if he is coming from that count, he doesn't want your better good. He may be a nice person to his own people, he may be even nice in certain ways to you, but the ultimate agenda of Esav is to destroy Yaakov by converting him to his own, to his other uh, religions and of course destroying him uh, spiritually so the question that we have is first and foremost why is yaakov scared i mean technically yaakov is a righteous person and uh, in fact yaakov is as righteous as it can get so much so that hashem took the image of yaakov that actually looked like adam arishon and he put it as one of the four uh, uh, images on the throne of glory, where you have the uh, uh, Yaakov's image, the image of a uh, uh, of a um, eagle, the king of the birds, a bull, and a lion, the four kings, if you will. So you have Yaakov was something extraordinary, and that's why when the mother, when it says a uh, last week's parasha. That the angels were going up and down the ladder the midrash explains that the, that the angels could not understand how could yaakov be in this world as well as on the throne of glory because the image of the throne of glory is not like an image that you can uh, you know get your some uh, some uh, sculptor to make you here literally it's a it's an image that's lifelike and they could not understand how he could be in two places at the same time that's why they were going up and down so here we have a question which Yaakov is extremely righteous, but yet Yaakov is afraid of Esav. He's asking Hashem for special help, divine help from Esav, and uh, he's in essence trying to do whatever is possible to get Hashem's mercy. Next we see, well of course we're going to try Bezal Hashem to answer all of these questions. Then we see that there is a angel that's sent 
that represents the angel of Esav to fight Yaakov. To fight Yaakov on his way. Now, of course, the Midrash says that this is a uh, uh, the representative of, of Esav, but it's because Yaakov went back to get a few uh, small things that he left that weren't worth very much, which is to show that Sadiqim, they were very, uh, 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 because their money is kosher, they're very particular about their possessions. They don't want to lose them. They don't want to waste them. So here there's almost, it seems like a divine rebuke of Yaakov being careful about not wasting his money, not wasting his possessions by sending him a battle with, nonetheless, an angel. An angel representing Esav. So what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of this uh, issue? After this battle, which is really the bigger question, at the end of the battle, it says that Yaakov asks the uh, angel, what is your name? What is your name? And the angel doesn't want to answer him. Says to him, what difference is it? What is my name? What's it to you? Why do you need to know my name? I told you that your name is no longer going to be Yaakov. You're going to be Israel and Yaakov. But my name is irrelevant. Why is the angel so particular about the name? To tell Yaakov, to not tell Yaakov, and even more so, what's the significance of changing the name? Many people have issues when it comes to naming children. This is a very... Uh, recurring and uh, common problem among all Jewish communities where when a new child is born new fights are born why because the tradition is to name the child after one of the parents whether it's on the wife's side or the or the husband's side so if there is peace among the uh, the, the couple where they already decide we're going to name this baby after the wife's side or after the husband's side you know, we see tradition in the Torah itself that usually the uh, first baby is named after the wife's uh, uh, family uh, or she chooses the name, whereas the second baby is uh, chosen by the husband. But again, this is not a law. You can do it opposite. You can simply have all of the names chosen by the wife or the husband, depending again, so long as it doesn't create fights. But many times the fights are not really between the husband and the wife, the parents of the child, but rather the fights come from outside. They come from the parents, they come from the brothers and the sisters that all of a sudden they care about the naming as if it's Matan Torah, as if it's like the uh, Torah being received from Mount Sinai. Oh, how can you not call your uh, son after Abba? How come you can't, you don't call your daughter after Ima? How come you can't do this? How could you do that? Our parents are going to be so embarrassed. Our parents are this. I just heard that uh, Ima was crying about it because she heard that you're going to name your daughter after your uh, wife. Wife's uh, 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 mom that's so disrespectful, you this, you that, and they create this, they bring this animosity into the couple's life where instead of it being a time of happiness, it turns into a nightmare. And worse yet is when somebody decides, listen, I understand you guys decided on such and such name, regardless of what it is, you can't call him that name, you can't call it that name. Why? That name is cursed. Cursed? Why is the name cursed? Why is this name cursed? The Jewish name? Why is the name cursed? Oh, no, don't, don't you remember that such and such uh, had a daughter and her name was, was the same name that you want to pick and she ended up marrying some goy. Oh, don't you remember that such and such, he has a son and that son is a thief. 
So surely, you you know, if you name your son the same name as this guy, maybe your son is going to be a thief. Is there any validity to this? Are there good names? Are there bad names? Because quite frankly, the angel is teaching us that there is significance in the name. So of course, this is another question. Another question that we need to try to answer. Bezat Hashem, Bezat Hashem, we're going to get time to answer all these questions. Now, after this, we of course uh see that uh yaakov gets uh you know the uh he sends the uh, tribute to esav when esav sees yaakov they hug it out some say that esav really actually tried to kill him by biting him that's why uh the uh the word for them uh, kissing each other has these special dots on it in the hebrew language showing that really esav bit Yaakov on his neck, but his teeth broke. So he realized that Yaakov has become Kodesh Kodeshim, holy of holies, that he is beyond the strength of Esav. Esav is powerless next to Yaakov. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, um, the thing that happens after is most particular, most interesting to us, where we see that Esav offers himself, his busy, wealthy self, to accompany Esav to accompany Yaakov and says, listen, let me go along with you. And Yaakov rejects it, saying, my Lord knows that the young ones are tender. Some say that he was referring to his children. Some say he was referring to his sheep, that were many of them were very young, that if we go, we're going to try to keep up with your pace. Uh, and uh, what's going to end up happening is all of these weak children or weak sheep uh, are going to end up dying. So better that you go your way and we'll catch up later. Why? Why not just say to Esav, listen, I'll go with you, but you have to slow down because I have all of these sheep, all of the cattle, all of the kids, all of the wives. I got everything else. Now I'm not just by myself. Just realize if you're coming with me, you have to comply. Why not do that? Why send them away and never see him again? The next question is, the very big question, one of the biggest tragedies, one of the biggest tragedies in Amisrael's history happens in this week's parasha, where it says, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, went out to look at the daughters of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamol, the ruler of the region, saw her, and he took her, and he lay with her, and he afflicted her. So here we see that Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, gets raped. Gets raped by this chamol, by this disaster of a, of, a, of a being. And of course, this is a nightmare and a half. Why does Dina deserve all of this? I mean, after all, she's a tzedeket. Uh, the Midrash says she was very, very beautiful. Uh, but it's not mentioned that she's beautiful. It's only mentioned in the Midrash. Whereas the beauty of Sarah, the beauty of Rachel, is mentioned in the Torah. Why? Why is Dina's beauty, even though it was well known, and uh, the reason why he was in love with her uh, after raping her, uh, which is usually the opposite of, 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 uh, of, of the psychotic mind of a rapist, he actually loves her and he wants to stay with her because she was so beautiful. Even more so, it says that he lay with her and he afflicted her. So the, uh, the Torah also tells us, what does it mean? What do we learn from the fact that he afflicted her? Obviously, if he raped her, he afflicted her. What is there to learn from there? This is also certainly extra details that are within the details. Why did Hashem allow this to happen? She's a tzaddikah. 
She's a good woman. Why did Hashem allow this to happen? Of course, we've spoken about this uh, in the past to a certain extent. We'll try to uh, cover it more, but even more so try to cover the uh, what ends up happening as a result of this, which is that her brothers, Shimon and Levi, end up murdering the entire people of Shechem and Chamo. Everybody, the whole, everybody, not no no exceptions. All of the men that were, including Shechem and his father Chamol, his grandfather, all of the uh, all of their soldiers, all of the people there. Simply, they murder everybody. Only the women and children are pretty much turned into slaves. What gives Shimon and Levi the right, especially since they're tzaddikim, they're righteous people? What gives them the right to do so? In fact, the Ramban asked the question, if what they did was the right thing to do, why did Yaakov not help them? And in fact, he actually rebuked them. He rebuked them for doing it. But yet at the same token, how can you say that what they did is wrong? The tzaddikim. So we cannot question our tzaddikim. There obviously there has to be an explanation for this. Why did, a God, why did God allow such a thing to happen? And again, after that, they say, uh, we did it. Why should we uh, allow our sister to be treated like a zona, like a harlot? Again, we have to ask ourselves, why did Hashem allow such things in His Torah? Uh, these things happen based on free choice of people, but nonetheless, why did He include all of these things? What can we learn from all of them? The... Um, after this, it talks about how the uh, the fight and everything happened, and then the uh, Yaakov and his family continue. And it says that during the uh, the way, two major things happened. One in a uh, chapter thirty-five, verse number uh, five, it says that. The uh, and the um, the nations of Canaan were petrified of Yaakov and his family. All of them were petrified of him. Why do I need to know that? If you're gonna tell me that they were afraid that they were gonna kill them, they don't need to be afraid. Why they just killed Shem and Chamol because they raped the sister. That's it, they have no reason to kill the rest of the people. So why are you terrified of them? If you're going to tell me that this is before the battle the, uh, with, the, uh, with Shem and Chamo, why would the nations be afraid when they have nothing to do with it? What do I need to learn from this? Furthermore, we see that Rachel died. Rachel the Tzedeket. Rachel dies. Why did Rachel die? She was a tzedekah. Why did she die? And last but not least, with all of the ongoing teachings that we have in our Torah, where we talk about what we started the conversation with, the fact that Esav hates Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. It is well known that Esav was actually supposed to be one of the patriarchs. He had an elevated neshama that had the potential to be the fourth pillar where it was supposed to be Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Esav, where Esav was supposed to be the father of six of the tribes. But because of his bad choices, uh, 
he ended up being the enemy of Yaakov, the enemy of Israel. But yet the, the, the reality is that the Torah doesn't actually detail what those actions are. I mean, if you're going to make somebody into an enemy, an enemy of Am Yisrael, at the very least, let me know the details. What did he do? Now, of course, they're saying that before he sent the, uh, uh, he sold the, the firstborn rights, he, uh, you know, he, uh, the Midrash says that he murdered somebody that day, he raped somebody that day, but that's behind the scenes. Is there something in the verses that shows how wicked Esav is? Because quite frankly, if you're going to be an enemy and when you had the potential to be a brother, there obviously has to be something significantly different between Esav and Yaakov. These are some of the questions that we asked Baruch Hashem this week of this parasha and Be'ezrat Hashem, we're going to try to answer them. Now, of course, parashat Vaishlach starts off with the rule, the law, that Esav hates Yaakov. After that, Yaakov cries to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, saying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please save me from my brother, save me from Esav. And quickly after, he... Uh, Quickly after, he obviously uh, prays to Hashem even uh, more so, but right, uh, right before it, we get a answer. We get a hint from Yaakov, where he says, Katonti mikola chasadim umikola emet, asher asita et avdecha ki b'makri avarti et ha-yerden hazeh, v'atah aiti lishne machanot. So Yaakov says in uh, chapter 32, um, verse 11, I have been diminished due to all of the kindness and due to all of the truth that you have done with your servant. And with my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Rescue me please from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. So here we see that Yaakov is teaching us about the mindset of the righteous. Where Although he knows that he is not a murderer like his brother Esav, still he's not considering himself like what we do, as the most righteous, as the most holy, as the uh, you know greatest of the of the patriarchs. No, he is Yaakov, and in fact he says, even if I was a righteous person and I did mitzvot. Certainly, you've already rewarded me already. You've, I came here without anything other than my staff in my hand. And you gave me multiple wives, the 12 tribes, and a guarantee that my descendants are the chosen people. Nobody else could ever take that away. And even more so, you've given me 12 righteous kids that even my father and my grandfather and my forefathers like Noah and Adam Rishon did not merit to have. Nobody ever had all of their kids righteous like Yaakov Avinu. Avraham had Yitzchak, but he also had Ishmael. Yitzchak had Yaakov, but he also had Esav. Noah had Shem, but he also had Yefet and Ham. So you had Adam Rishon had Evel, who died shortly after, and then Shet, but he also had Cain that was very wicked. So Yaakov says the type of 
gift that you've given me certainly has already superseded whatever merit was due to me. So now for me to survive this battle against my brother is not, uh, it's not something that I expect. Uh, that's why I have to pray. I have to pray. But at the same token, we know that Yaakov is strong. When he met uh, Rachel, he lifted the huge stone off of the well because there was a shortage of water. So they would cover the well and only once a day when everybody would finish work, all the shepherds would finish work, everybody would come and pick up this, uh, this huge rock, this huge boulder covering the well for everybody to drink. So no one drinks all of the water and causes everybody else to die. But yet when Yaakov comes over there, he lifts the entire boulder by himself. So we see that Yaakov is super strong, not just strong. What are you scared of this Esav? I mean, even if he's strong, how much stronger can he possibly be? But then we learn again, the hints are in the verses where we see that Yaakov ends up fighting against this angel. So we see that the fight against Esav is not a regular fight. This, he's not worried about the physical fight, but rather the spiritual fight. Please, Hashem, protect me from the spiritual damage that can come from, from Esav. That has nothing to do with physical strength. He could be bigger, he could be more muscular. That doesn't make a difference. If I have the truth, even if he kills my body, my soul goes to eternity of good. My soul is still going to, to heaven. But if he affects my neshama and he causes me to worship some guy that died 2,000 years ago, or he caused me to worship some false prophet that spoke Arabic but didn't know how to read or write it, or he causes me to, to, to uh, dress like some Power Ranger or some, uh, some uh, 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 video game car- character, instead of worshiping God, obviously this is going to hurt my neshama. And then I'm going to end up being in Gehenom. So protect me from that. And I know you've already given me so much. And in fact, the reason why Yaakov is mentioning that Hashem gave him so much is because he's thanking Hashem. He's thanking Hashem. This is actually one of the reasons why the patriarchs got so much. Where Yaakov is trying to teach his children today that instead of complaining to Hashem about your problems, about the test that you have about the difficulty that's in front of you first and foremost count your gifts count the blessings that he already gave you okay so you're short of money you're 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 looking for a shiduch you're you're you you want to have another child or a child for the first time you have health issues whatever issue everybody has fine i know it's easy to cry it's easy to complain it's easy to blame god about everything but when was the last time you counted all the blessings you did have until now? All the good that God did give you until now. When did you actually count them? Needless to say, when did you actually thank Hashem for them? Did you thank Hashem for the fact that He's allowed you to breathe for the last 20, 30, or 40, or 50 years? Did you thank Hashem that He gave you vision, that you're able to see the beauty of His creation? When was the last time you thanked Hashem for being able to hear beautiful sounds? whether it be kosher music or the sound of your spouse or your children playing or learning Torah with the rabbi. When was the last time you thanked Hashem for that beautiful gift? Because there are many people that don't have good hearing or any hearing at all. 
when was the last time do you thank the shem that you have taste buds that could still taste food and in fact that there is good food available and we're not like the snake that everything is like sand when was the last time that you thanked the shem for the last 20 30 40 years that he gave you the clothing on your back that house that you've lived in the 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 car that you drove the money that you had the food that you ate now of course yes you have issues now but did you thank him for what he already gave you before you're asking for this new salvation because if you thank hashem that in itself gives you the merit that would warrant getting further blessings but if you don't appreciate what he already gave you then you are portraying one of the worst character traits that exists in the world which is ungratefulness being a kfui tova the gemara says there are certain people that god hates one of them is a kfui tova is someone that's ungrateful because if you're ungrateful then certainly you're go- you're a bad person and of course people think yeah yeah no i thank god all the time yeah but that's not the only place you have to be grateful are you also grateful to people that have helped you if you have your parents they helped you are you grateful for the help they gave you you have a rabbi he helped you are you grateful for the help that he gave you you have a spouse she gave you he gave you a piece of themselves their life their time their money their resources their love their emotions are you grateful for that yeah yeah I'm grateful do they know that you're grateful yeah yeah I told her one time when when did you tell her you're grateful yeah when we got married five ten years ago oh so you told her then so what if it changes you'll let her know the reality is that most people do not realize that even if they are grateful most of the time the people around them don't know for some reason people are not only stingy with their money they're even stingy with their words they're stingy with their gratitude when was the last time they say thank you to someone that changed their life and helped them do tshuva whether it be a family friend or brother or sister or rabbi whoever it was when was the last time they say thank you to their boss that gives them a job and gives them a paycheck I have certain employees that literally every single check that they get every two weeks they get paid they make sure to send me a thank you I mean this was something beautiful I never had it on Wall Street when I paid people millions of dollars but yet here running an organization of business I have a few people that say thank you but yet there are certain people that you could literally give them a raise you can give them a promotion you can give them whatever they want and gratitude is simply unbeknownst to them they don't even know what it is they expect it there are certain people in your life that literally do not know what thank you is and it behooves you to teach them by showing them the shield by reminding them not by being abrasive and saying oh you didn't say thank you because that's not going to help in fact they'll help you know cause them to not want to say thank you but rather having them learn the Torah and show them the importance of gratitude because if a person learns how to be grateful to people certainly he'll eventually realize that he has to be grateful to his creator or her creator but if a person is ungrateful to people for sure the Gemara says he's ungrateful to his creator so Yaakov Avinu is going through a life test unlike any other but he takes the opportunity to thank Hashem for all of the blessings because he says that all of these blessings already have superseded whatever merit that I have I need to earn what more merits what's better than thanking you for what you've already given me
See, here we see that this whole battle is another way for Hashem to teach us the nature of the patriarchs and why He loved them so much. How much they thanked Him. And if you calculate, what did He really thank Him for? If from our perspective, oh, He had wife. Okay, well, other people have wives. Oh, He had kids. Well, naturally, if you have a wife, typically you'll have kids, Bezal Hashem. Oh, yeah, well, He had a job. You call that a job? Working for some criminal for 20 years? That's a job? He cheated him of millions of dollars? That's a job? Well, technically it was enough to eat. Wait, you're telling me I have to be gratitude for for a job that just pays me enough to eat? Gratitude? You owe that job your life. Anyone that watched one of my shurim in the series that we had years ago, Amazing Questions About God, we had a whole shur about gratitude. When a person understands the importance of gratitude, they'll realize that literally for just somebody lending you a pen, a pen, you owe them a life of gratitude, a pen. Needless to say, someone that gives you a job, needless to say a million and a half times, someone that gives you an opportunity to go to eternal eternal, uh, heaven. But the average person doesn't delve into what they already got, they delve into what they need. Hence the reason why they're miserable. So here the Torah is trying to tell us that this judgment is one of the ways that Hashem can show us the beauty of our patriarchs. Later on, we actually go into the fight between the angel and Yaakov, teaching us that this this battle between Esav and Yaakov did not end 4,000 years ago. In fact, it's still going on and it's the ultimate war of good versus evil until this day. This is the explanation behind why Cain killed Abel. This is why Hashem allowed Abel to die because Abel wasn't alive for long enough to sin. There's an ultimate battle between Cain versus Abel. Uh, and, And that's in essence good versus evil. But after they die, that battle transforms into the next generation, the next generation. And there's a power of Kedusha and power of Tuma, of evil, of impurity in the world that will culminate at the end when the evil will be eliminated at the time of Mashiach. But before that, evil will have the power. And only people that sanctify themselves will be able to withstand it without falling as a trap into it. So here we see that this battle was, is not something that ended. And in fact, the ultimate power of evil, say the Chachamim, say the Mekubalim, was given to Esav. The ultimate highest level of impurity in the world is in the hands of Esav, which means the father of Amalek, which means this is Christianity. This is the idolatry that started off as my brother, a fellow Jew that strayed away from God and decided to turn himself into some idol. A person that some people call Mashiach, but in reality they mean that he's a deity called Mashiach. So the highest level of impurity, according to some of the greatest Chachamim that we have, is in the hands of Esav. This battle is still going. It's a spiritual battle nonetheless. It's not something we have to fight them with, a, uh, with, with, with guns and knives and fists. No. It's a spiritual battle. This is why the Christian church is willing to spend every penny that it has to convert the Jews. 
to Christianity. But yet, the Jews are not even willing to spend a single dollar to convert the Christians into Judaism. If the Christian wants to convert, they're welcome, but they have to become Jews. They have to leave the Christianity in the garbage. But it's, they're on their own. There's no special fund to convert Christians to Judaism. You want to convert? Welcome. Why? Because again, this is a spiritual battle. If you've left the church, you have to prove it by abandoning everything and sacrificing everything for the sake of the truth. There's no way that we would know that you're willing to do that if there's a special fund and a promotion to proselytize everywhere. Certainly, we should help converts that are genuine once they've shown, once they've proven that they're genuine and real, after they convert. But beforehand, you're very limited with what you can do. Why? Because there is a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual battle. Now, the church, on the other hand, they're willing to spend every single penny to recruit a Jew to say that he believes in Yoshke. Now, at the end of this battle, it's still going now, but the end of the battle that happened almost 4,000 years ago, the angel, the angel is telling Yaakov that his name is going to be Israel. And when Yaakov asks him his name, he says, what difference is my name? What difference? Rashi on the Pasuk says, what the angel meant is that the angels don't have fixed names with the exception of a few of the major ones such as uh, 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 Gavriel or Michael and a couple of others, Malach Memtet, these are great angels. The rest of the angels don't have specific names. They have names that are based on their mission. If he has a mission to go heal somebody, he's called Raphael. If he has a mission to go do something else, he's called something else. So from there we learn something significant. From there we learn that the name of a person has a lot to do with what their role in the world is. And in fact, the Midrash Rabbah in uh, Parashat uh, Vayetze says that there are people in the Torah that have a good name and some that don't. People that have good names and good deeds that follow. People that have good names and bad deeds. And it gives examples. Midrash Rabbah, uh, Parasha 71, Section 3. It says, Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina says, there are four categories mentioned regarding names of people. That those whose names are admirable and their actions are admirable. Those that have names that are loathsome and their actions loathsome. Those that have names that are loathsome but their actions are admirable and those that are ad- names are admirable but their actions are loathsome. And he gives examples. An example of someone that had a good name but loathsome actions is Esav. Esav had a good name. Ishmael had a good name. Esav's name means someone who performs good deeds. Ishmael's name means someone that 
uh, his name is heard, meaning the name of God. God heard his name, meaning that he obeys God. But both of them violated the, the, the laws of God. On the other hand, there are people that have ugly names, loathsome names, but their actions were admirable. During the Babylonian exile, the Torah tells us that the children of Bakuk, the children of uh, Hakupa, and the children of Chachu, this is in Ezra, chapter 2, verse 51. These names are not exactly the most beautiful names, but these were tzaddikim that merited to ascend from Babylon to, um, to Eretz Israel and build the Bet Mikdash. Then you have those that have ugly names, loathsome names, and loathsome actions. Who is that? The spies, the Meraglim. They were called Sesu, Setu. Each one is referring to someone that goes off the path, destruction. These were the spies. They were actually leaders before they became wicked and spoke against the land and against Moshe and against God. And the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says in Perik Chelek, they have no share of the world to come. They died an unusual death and Shemishmo. Then there are people that have names that are admirable and their actions are admirable. Good name and good actions. Who are those? The 12 tribes. Uven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and the rest of the brothers. All of those names are beautiful names in the eyes of God and their actions were beautiful. What can that do to help me? What can that do to help me? Certainly, the name of a person is significant. This is why, for example, there are certain tzaddikim like Rav Kanievsky, that used to add a name to people that were going through a difficulty like a health issue. He would add a name to them because once you have a certain name and there was a certain decree on that person, there's a possibility that if you add a good name, not just any name that you saw on the internet, but some good name that a tzaddik gives you, that name could actually change the decree because the mission has changed. The mission has changed. And this answers the question of those parents, those poor parents that have trouble every time they have a kid. There's family fighting because both sides of the family want the name. This kid needs to be named after our family, not your wife's family, not your husband's family because we did this and we did that and did this and did that. Or the people that are afraid to call somebody a certain name because there's some wicked person in the family or that you know about that has that name. This answers those questions. How? First and foremost, don't name your kids after wicked people. Now, if the wicked person happens to have the same name as your kid, that does, has no effect on you. There are plenty of people that were called Ishmael throughout history in the Jewish world, that even in the Gemara, even at the time of the Bet HaMikdash, and the Tzadikim Kedoshim, but yet there's Ishmaels that are terrorizing Am Yisrael today. So just because there's an Ishmael that's bad, doesn't mean that all Ishmael are bad. 
Certainly, if you call your kids the names that are praiseworthy in the Torah, names of righteous people in the Torah, and you name them after that person, you name it after Reuven, you name it after Sarah, you name it after Rivka, after uh, uh, Rachel, after Judah, after uh, Gad, after you know uh, Benjamin, Yosef, and so on, or after the Navi Ovadia, you name him after these holy people, then certainly this can impact your child in a positive way. So the first rule is name your kids after tzaddikim. Do not name them after wicked people. Now, needless to say, don't name them after wicked people that died. In, in fact, Rabbi Yudaftaya writes in his Minchat uh, Yehuda that he made the mistake of naming one of his children after a wicked family member that died and his child died. And he saw in a dream that he died because that person's neshama went into his child along several other family members' uh, kids that had a child and all of those kids died. And he says, I'm teaching you, listen to me, never name your kid after a wicked person. Because that wicked person has multiple death penalties against them. And when you name him after this wicked person that didn't keep Shabbat, that didn't keep Tarat Mishpacha, that didn't keep these things, that person, Neshama, goes into that kid and he can, in order for, for him to receive the death penalty. Shemishmo. Never name him after a wicked person. Three, as far as naming him after families, if the family member is righteous, you could lean towards it if it's going to make your parents happy and so on. But if the family member is wicked, doesn't observe Torah, you have no business naming them after wicked people. Why? It's not a good idea. It's not a good for you. It's not good for the kid. And one of the ways you can get out of it is simply not naming the kid after anybody in the family, naming him after somebody in the Torah. Why? Because the name does have significance to the point where it could be the mission of that person. So we see that this argument, if you will, between the angel and Yaakov also has quite a bit to teach us. After that, we see that Yaakov tells his brother Esav that he cannot go along with them. He has to go his way, we're going to go our way. Why? Since we've already learned that the battle between Esav and Yaakov is a spiritual battle. It's an ongoing battle until this day. That means that every father, every mother, every brother, every sister has to understand that even if you are strong enough to withstand the impurity that's coming from some family and friends that are going against God, that does not mean that you should go and do it. That does not mean that you should go hang out with them. Needless to say, it doesn't mean that your family can handle it also. So if you have wicked people in your circle, even if you want to do kiruv to help them do tshuva, don't do it next to your children. Because their impurity, their behavior can affect those little kids and spiritually kill them, lead them to live a, a life that's the opposite. This is why Yaakov says, you can't come with us, not because of me, but because the kids are tender, the young ones are tender, they're fragile, they're not as strong as me. I can handle you. I've dealt with Lavan, I can handle you too. But my kids are not strong enough to handle your tumah, your impurity. 
So this again is a lesson for us all. Now after that we learn about the rape of Dina. Now we've already talked about Dina last week and in previous times where Dina was punished for going outside and looking at the daughters of the land. A righteous woman will teach her daughters to also be righteous by staying home, by being a homebody, developing their character traits, not being involved or interested even in the non-religious world, needless to say, in the non-Jewish world. In previous generations, most of B'not Yisrael did not even go to school. This is only a last hundred years or so that girls start getting an education in, in, in schools and in, in seminaries. Why? There's really no need in the Jewish world for a woman to get the yeshiva education. And many sages were against it because they thought that, and rightly thought in many cases, that it's more trouble than it's worth. Yes, she'll get a lot of education, she'll know how to do a lot of different things, but she'll also become much more modern, which is actually what happened in many places. The girls of today are not the girls of the original Bet Yaakov that were willing to die for the sake of Torah and for Hashem and everything else. Today, girls get education, all of a sudden it's not enough for them to learn Musar, to learn about the halachot of women. They also want to learn Gemara. She also wants to put on tefillin. She wants to be a rabbi, like this Zona that, uh, that uh, Manus Friedman interviewed or spoke to just the other day. She has tattoos all over her arms, Hashem Yishmovi had seen. She calls herself a rabbi, and this moron speaks to her in a video for people to learn from. This type of warped mindset is the result of the educational system, where people want more than what they need. Abat Israel needs to learn from Haman. That's the main teacher that she's supposed to have in her life. She needs to know how to read. She needs to know, know, learn basics of, of how to run a house, how to be a righteous person, how to be a modest person, know obviously the, 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 the basics of the Torah, who our forefathers are, all the halachot that pertain to, to Shabbat, to, uh, to uh, uh, Chagim, to a uh, Kashrut, to run a house, to be a kosher Jew. But there's absolutely no need for her to go learn the, uh, the, the skills that are taught in colleges and universities, and all of these other things. And even if it's for the sake of getting a job, there's certainly ways to get jobs today and to learn specific skills without attending these impure places. Whether you want to call them Yeshiva University or you want to call them Harvard, you want to call them UCLA, it's all the same. They all have a place full of homosexuals, liberals, and people that are anti-Torah. Why would you send your daughter, needless to say, your son to such a place? So Dina is the example that we're all supposed to learn from once you get out of those four amot that you're supposed to be in, start becoming interested in something else, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave a very strong rebuke. And the reason why Dina's beauty is not mentioned literally in the Torah, but only in the Midrashim, because she was extraordinarily beautiful, is because the only beauty that is worth mentioning in the Torah is if the beauty did not lead to trouble. The beauty of Sarah, did not lead to trouble because she was reserved, she was modest and Hashem did not let anybody touch her in a wrong way. The beauty of Rachel, the beauty of Rachel was something unbelievable and 
no one was able to hurt Rachel. The beauty of certain women in the Torah was mentioned. Why? Because it did not lead to bad things. The beauty of Dina did. Hence the reason why it's only mentioned in the oral Torah. That beauty led her to get attention because she was looking where she wasn't supposed to look. And when the calculations in Shemaim were evaluated, she deserved it. But why did her father deserve it? Because her father uh, vowed to return to his parents to bring a sacrifice to Hashem as a gratitude which he delayed and he also hid Dina from his brother uh, Esav which the Midrash says that she was supposed to be the woman that actually helps Esav do tshuva so Hashem rebuked Yaakov saying oh if you don't want to use her to get uh, your brother to do tshuva then uh, we'll have somebody else take her if you don't want to deliver the the sacrifice that you promised on time and you're delaying it then you're like a sub this is what hashem tells yaakov if you if you don't if you continue delaying it and you got punished with the uh, tragedy of your daughter because you didn't keep your word because you didn't you know the way that yaakov was measured which was with precision of tzaddikim that in essence brought this meaning that a person needs to be careful with the words that come out of their mouth the divine judgment is very precise so it's not just what it all seems now of course what do we learn from the words themselves where it says that that he lay with her he raped her but he also tortured her the gemara and masechet sanedrin say we learn from that he did meaning that he was with her both the traditional way and the opposite way and from there we learn that the bia the uh the uh, uh intimate act between a man and a, uh, and a woman a man and his wife it's it's considered a consummation of the marriage whether it's from that way or that way but needless to say the uh the one that's the uh, the other way is considered the unnatural way which from there we learn that when a man lay with another man that is considered when he one man lays with another man like a man lays with a woman that's considered an unnatural way unnatural act the same thing as an unnatural act between a man and an ox a man and a cow in the eyes of God homosexuality and bestiality are exactly the same so here we see that Dina goes through hell then her brothers murder everybody Shechem, Chamo and everybody there after they make the deal that they're all going to circumcise themselves what right did Shimon and Levi have to do such a thing what right did they have the Chachamim teach us that in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin there's a whole section about it maybe about almost eight ten dapim in Ilchot Melachim by the Rambam there is a, a two prakim and maybe probably around 
30, 40 halachot, uh, there is a uh, endless amount of information that Bezat Hashem will do a shiur about one day about the laws of Noach. The laws of Noach. And the after the time of the flood, the laws of Noach became something that not only was an obligation, it was already an obligation before that. It was already an obligation. The first six laws were already obligated at the time of Adam Rishon. But the people of the world being born into a world that was already destroyed accepted upon themselves the laws of Noach, including modesty, even with during intimacy, including not uh, worshiping idols, including not eating an animal uh, while it's a, uh, still alive, uh, not committing adultery, not committing incest, not committing homosexuality, not cursing God, having a, uh, a, a court of law. So Shimon and Levi said, listen, these people from Shechem, they're Noahites. And one of the laws of Noah is to have a court. Now, certainly the whole country knows that he kidnapped our sister, which is a violation of the laws of Noah. Kidnapping, it's stealing. And yet nobody sent them to court. Nobody judged them. And according to those very same laws of Noah, they all of them become guilty. Just like in Am Yisrael and in the Torah, if you see your brother's sin, violating Shabbat, worshiping an idol, committing all types of sex crimes and so on, and you don't say something, you become guilty of the very same sin. The same goes for the Noahites. If they see that their brother is sinning, their sister is sinning, and they don't do anything about it, they all become guilty of it. So Shimon and Levi says they all saw this Shechem kidnap our sister and they didn't judge him, they didn't bring him to court, they're all guilty. And the one main difference between the judgment of the Noahides by God versus the judgment of the Jews by God is that the judgment of the Jews is different from case to case. Some certain, certain things they do, such as stealing, uh, such as a uh, hating somebody, such as, uh, I don't know, eating non-kosher, there are certain punishments, but it's not death penalty. If they killed somebody, it could be death penalty. If it's a uh, worship an idol, it's death penalty. Homosexuality is a death penalty. Uh, violating Shabbat is a death penalty. Incest is a death penalty, and so on. But other things are not necessarily death penalty. For the Noahides, everything is a death penalty. Violation of any one of the seven mitzvot of Noah is death penalty. So by them not having a court, they all deserve death penalty. That was their reason. But the question still remains. If that's the reason, then why didn't Yaakov Avinu, the tzaddik, join them? Why didn't he join them? In fact... The Chachamim say that when they were making the deal with Shechem to go do the Brit Milah, Yaakov knew that they intended to kill them. Or to, to not keep this, uh, this whole thing. So why is he upset at them later on? So there's different opinions that go back and forth about this with the Ramban or the uh, Rashi or the Midrashim and so on. Ultimately, it was that they did more 
than was the original plan. The original plan was to kill Shechem and Chamo, the two criminals, the father and the son. Why? They did it. He's the one that a, uh, uh, a raped her. He's the one that's keeping her in his house. They're the ones, they're the criminals. The rest of the people, they didn't do anything. That was what Yaakov thought was the plan of Shimon and Levi. And that was the original plan. But when they came back with a bunch of slaves, a bunch of gold, a bunch of everything, and there's bodies everywhere, dead, everyone knows, a huge disaster, an atomic bomb just went off. Yaakov rebukes them. Why? You did more. Why did you do more? Once we got there and we saw that they're all idol worshipers, we saw that they're all criminals anyway, we couldn't control ourselves. It wasn't just about our sister anymore. We just said they're all criminals anyway. That's what the Ramban says. They're all criminals anyway. It wasn't just our sister being their only crime and them not having a court being the only crime. They're all idol worshipers. We murdered all of them. They went against God. So now Yaakov says to them, you put me in an uncomfortable position. And then later on it says that the whole world became afraid. The whole world became afraid of Yaakov. Why? There is a sefer. There is a sefer that's a uh, midrash that is called Sefer Amilchamot or Milchamot Bnei Yaakov. The wars of the sons of Yaakov. The Yalkut Ma'am Loez has details of it. And it's a, uh, uh, what is this, the volume 3A. Highly, highly recommended for you to read it for yourself. Needless to say, to read it to your kids. Where's the whole section at the end of this parashat, parashat Ve'eshev, that talks about the wars of Yaakov and his children after what happened with Shechem. Why? After what happened with Shechem, all of the other Canaanite nations, which some of them were giants, went to war with the 12 tribes, went to war with Yaakov. And it goes into details of how the 12 tribes massacre one nation after another, one giant after another, one building after another, killing 30,000 people a day each. In some cases, 5, 10, 20,000. Literally unbelievable things. Also talks about their powers that they had. Supernatural powers, which from there you see where all the superhero movies of today, Le'avdil, where they came from. These are all ideas that are inside our Torah. So after they massacred everybody, everybody became scared. That's why there was the terror. So now the last question that we have is... Why, why did Esav become such a filthy person, an enemy of God, where the prophet Micha says, in the name of Hashem, et Esav Saneti, I hate Esav, Yaakov Ahavti, et Esav Saneti, that I loved Yaakov, but Esav, I hate him. So this is not just our feelings towards Esav, this is what Hashem feels, he hates Esav. That Esav, the only thing that he inherited is literally he's going to be the powerful one in this world where he has the Koach Tum'ah, the highest level of impurity, which Chachamim said was transferred into Yoshke and to those people. 
all the missionaries all the idolaters that are trying to recruit Jews into their idolatry all of that Tuma, the Pope and the followers this is all Rabotai part of the battle between Esav and Yaakov good versus evil good being Yaakov evil being Esav why I mean if he had such an elevated neshama with so much potential and then you tell me that he went astray at the very least I would need to know what did he do what did he do is there a place in the Torah that shows what he did yes where in this week's parasha in this week's parasha in chapter 36 it talks about the offspring of Esav his wives Ada Aulivama Basmat but then if you follow the names you'll see some unusual things what will you see you'll see that the names of two of his wives Ada and Olivama used to be called Basmat and Yehudit because they had fake names when they married Esav in order to fool his father to thinking that he's righteous and they're righteous then you see the names of the kids and you start noticing that there is a problem here why Ada had a kid named Eliphaz Eliphaz ended up committing adultery with his a uh, with his father-in-law his wife and had a daughter then Eliphaz turned his daughter Timna into his concubine in so many words another wife his girlfriend from there from this incestual act came Amalek now if this was the only incest adultery in a family say okay this is one bad thing but it's not you see that Korach Korach that was a uh, one of the descendants of Eliphaz also came also came from a uh, adulterous act ancestral act actually Anna Tivion Lotan quite a few different names are involved in all types of things where you'll see for example in a um, chapter 36 verse 20 you see that uh, the um, it says the sons of Seir the Chorite was Lotan Shoval Tzivion and Anna those were his sons but then later on it says the sons of Tzivion not Seir was Aya and Anna and Chachamim says this is the same Anna same Anna how could it be that the uh, Tzivion who was the son of Seir 
ended up having a uh, incest with his mother. So therefore, Anna was his son and his brother. So when a person sees that the choices of women, choices of relationships, choices of business that came from Esav and his children and his wives, they will find that they were the first to crossbreed animals, which is forbidden for both Jews and Gentiles until this day. It's called Kilaim. His his, uh, son is the one that came up with, was the first one, Anna, was the first one to uh, combine the male donkey with the female horse, which uh, brought the uh, mule. And since Anna himself came from an incest, so this became this was normal to him. Just things that are unnatural. Things that are kilo kedarka. So you see that incest was an adultery was common practice in the house of Asav. Whether it's his wives being with multiple men, or his children, or he himself. You see that the business practices, what they did for a living, was certainly crooked. You see that when you go into the details of who the names are, you see that there is literally footsteps of disaster one after another, connected to every single one of them. So now you would say, wait a minute, so if there's such a disaster, I understand why Hashem turned them into the enemy of Yaakov. But the same token, why let them exist? So the last answer is the following. One, because there is a battle between good and evil that has to exist until Mashiach comes. But two, is that one of the ways that Hashem brings the salvation, brings the special treasures into the world is by hiding them inside filth. Hence the reason why, like we said last week, the soul of the Mashiach has been brought into the world and transferred from generation to generation through different strange acts. Whether it was the incest between a uh, Lot and his daughters or the uh, what seemed like an inappropriate relationship at first until they got married between Yehuda and Tamal, or it was what seemed inappropriate at first until later on, well, where obviously the picture is much clearer between uh, um, uh, David and Bathsheba or his grandmother Ruth converting after, you know, everything is strange. When you want to transfer a very precious treasure, the Chachamim say, cover it with garbage. And one of the Chachamim asked, why did Hashem create a Sav? And Hashem says, because I saw that in the future, there's going to be Rabbi Meir Baranis. And just for him, it was worth it to bring all of Esav and all of the tragedies. And it's not only just Rabbi Meir Baranis, but all of the people that learn his Torah, all of the people that follow in his footsteps. When a person understands that there are going to be different special treasures that are going to come into the world from that Esav, the only way to rationalize it in our human mind is by understanding that the judgment 
of God, the divine judgment, is not like ours. This family could be like the family of Lavan, but still have Rivka, Leah, and Rachel. All come from there, in one form or another, whether the children or the parent and so on, the sister. It could be Lavan. Lavan who ends up becoming a uh, Bilam, Bilam al-Rashad, the enemy of Am Yisrael, the enemy, the nemesis of Moshe Rabbeinu. Chachamim say Bilam is Lavan, Lavan is Bilam. But yet, those special sparks of Kedusha came from there. And that is happening until this day where special converts that are observant of the Torah, abandoning all false beliefs, abandoning all connection to idolatry, abandoning any connection to the actions and behaviors of the nations and gluing themselves to the Jewish people of today and throughout all the generations. You see that these people, when they truly connect, they connect in such a fashion, you forget that they're even converts. You forget that they were ever not connected because the truth is they were always part of us. Many of the neshamot that are coming into the world today through conversion are people that strayed in previous generations in their previous carnations and their punishment was to be reincarnated as non-Jews in order for them to convert to Judaism. The neshamot of the converts were at Mount Sinai. But the path of the convert is never easy. Needless to say, it's not for a normal, uh, uh, you know, uh, natural-born Jew, I should say. So, the divine judgment is something that's beyond our comprehension. But after we see all of this, and we understand that there is details, behind the details, behind the details that explain everything, we can then understand the following. When it says that the wicked, when they die, it's good for them. And it's good for society. We understand that because life is not just this world. Life is beyond this world. When a person understands that there is a heaven and a genom, they understand that the sooner a sinner, a wicked person is out of this world, certainly it's better for society that doesn't have to suffer his stealing his lying his cheating his murder but it's also good for him because the sooner he stops sinning the sooner his punishment will end and perhaps maybe he'll even get another chance to do tshuva by being reincarnated and even if he's not reincarnated Certainly it's better for him to have a punishment end sooner rather than later. Because the more he sins, the more he'll have to be punished. Even if that means that it's going to be a million years of Genom before the Neshama is officially destroyed altogether. So it's to his interest, because he chose to be a Sav's follower, it's to his interest that he die. It's to his interest that the drunk wicked person is a uh, is, is, is not a uh, is not around anymore but at the same time it says that wine and sleep are good for him why is wine and good sleep in because when he's drunk and sleepy he's making less sins he's making less sins 
certainly it's better for him because he doesn't pursue the evil deeds that he typically does when he's clear-minded the same goes for them being all over the place dispersal of the wicked people it's good for them why because when the wicked people are united they cause much greater damage so for them to be separate from each other is certainly better for them why because if they unite they'll make more sins and they'll get punished even worse so it's good for them to be dispersed assembly for the wicked is terrible like we said when they combine they create bigger damage this unity among certain wicked people out there is not a good thing for them needless to say for the rest of the world but even tranquility is not good for them why is tranquility not good for the wicked people because when a person has peace of mind he has the ability to think and plan and when the wicked people plan they plan bad things it's better for them to keep busy go work at some factory go run google go run uh, whatever it is that you do be busy with work be busy doing other things just don't relax why when you relax you have master plans that create damage and the exact opposite is for the righteous when a person sees these statements initially without understanding the divine judgment it looks bad but when a person sees things from the eyes of the divine God the eyes of the Torah he sees ah if it says so there has to be a reason and certainly those reasons are available to us at least some of them hopefully this gave us a little bit more clarity on that question and to answer the question of the people that have family members that are wicked and you should first try to help them do tshuva send them videos but if they're set on being atheist homosexual enemies of god idolaters and so on your best bet is to simply stay away from them why it's better for them and it's better for you because if you stay close to them eventually they'll affect you and if they affect you their punishment will get bigger and certainly will yours and that's not something anybody should want so oh Hashem I hope that this gave you guys some chizuk I know this was longer than usual but uh this will cover a very important subject that I know is on the mind of a lot of people certainly was something that we learned this week so now we're going to take a short drink and you guys can start asking questions okay reminder to everybody whoever wants to donate on the uh for the new movie will enter the uh raffle to win a uh talit uh, one of the fancy talits that i just showed you earlier the amount of money obviously certainly is up to you uh that's what it is okay first question i see which are the brachot rishonot and achronot on cereal and that has the majority of rice or minority of uh, wheat uh, then it's mezonot then it's mezonot there is a uh, uh, there is a um, some uh, 
um, kashrut organizations uh, that certify the cereals that they have on their websites the different blessings for different cereals. I also know that uh, uh, Arav, um, what's his name? Uh, one of the Rabbanim, I forget his name. He's a big Talmit Chacham. He actually has a write-up about the different blessings for all the different cereals and granola bars and so on. So you could find us online. If you can't find it online, you can send uh, me a, uh, a message on uh, uh, on WhatsApp, and uh, if I have it handy, I'll send it to you. Next question, uh, Jack. Uh, let's see. Why do Chazal call what Rachel did by giving Leah the simanim a noble act, as to not embarrass her sister, but it's okay to uh, have Yaakov embarrassed and Levan? And all of his buddies in the morning laughing at him, you just can't justify it. You can't justify doing good deeds, especially someone else's account. So this has everything to do with our shiu. Uh, in fact, the uh, the very same midrash, uh, if you uh, we talked about earlier, this very same midrash, but early on, in a uh, it talks about this whole thing. Oh, your, your question in essence. Where it's a uh, first off in a midrash um, Raba in Parashat uh, Ein Ein seventy in uh, section eighteen it says uh, Yaakov says there's a pasuk in the Torah twenty uh, verse twenty nine verse twenty one where it says that Yaakov says to Lavan deliver my wife for my term is fulfilled and I will consort with her so the midrash says what kind of language is this. Who says this to his father-in-law? Come, bring me your daughter so I can consort with her, meaning I can be intimate with her. What is this? Even criminals don't say such a thing. So certainly, this is not what the clear language was, but rather, Yaakov was saying, I am now 84 years old. How do we know? Because he was, uh, when he got the blessing from his uh, father, he was 63. Then he stayed 14 years at the yeshiva of Shemen Ever. So that's 77, and he had to wait seven years to, uh, to, uh, to, marry, uh, to marry the daughter of, uh, of Levan. So he says, I'm 84 years old, and I know through prophecy that the 12 tribes have to come from me. So if I don't start now, it's not going to happen. So I need to get married right away. We can't delay this. So now, this is when Levan understood that he has Yaakov in his hands in so many words. But he needed partners. So what did Lavan do? The, uh, the Midrash says that Lavan went to the people of the town and said to them, you know that uh, we used to have a drought, nobody had water until Yaakov. Yaakov came here and uh, the, God blessed the water. If you want Yaakov to stay here so the water could stay blessed, you have to help me keep him here. He said, okay, fine. He says, first of all, give me, he's going to, wants to marry my daughter. So, I have a plan that he's going to marry the other daughter because that way he'll be forced to work for me for another seven years. But I need to make sure that none of you are going to tell him. So all of you have to give me a bunch of money as like a collateral, as a promise that if you tell, then uh, you know you lose the money. So everybody that was in essence looking for their own interest for Yaakov's blessing to stay, they all joined forces. And then 
the uh, the midrash says that uh, during that night Yaakov was a little bit baffled of how much partying that was happening, how many praises he was getting from all of these people. And they say, well, he asked them, why are you give me all these blessings? Why are you with me? You know, what, what is all of this? Like, oh no, because you're the reason we got blessed with the water and everything else. And they started singing a song to him. And uh, started singing a song to him. is a Ay Lai La, Ay Lai La song that the Midrash says, in essence, that some of them were trying to hint to Yaakov, it's Leah, it's Leah, it's not, uh, it's not Rachel. They felt bad. Uh, or they were in essence trying to cover their bases by the fact that they knew that he's going to you know, switch the girl. But when he wakes up tomorrow and finds out, he can't blame them. Why? Because we tried to tell you. We can't do it next to Lavan because he would kill us. He's a wizard. He's a sorcerer. But we tried singing to you. Ay, lai, la, ay, lai, la. You didn't get the hint. That's probably more like it. Either way, this whole plan was a very, very big plan. Then they went with him when they were going to the Cheder Yehud, him and his new wife, she was completely covered. He didn't see anything. And they shut off his candles. Yaakov says to them, what are you doing shutting off the candles? Now you guys are a bunch of men. There's one girl here. He says, no, what are you talking about? We're not uh, immodest and uh, like your people. We are shutting it because that's the way we accepted upon ourselves already at the time of Noah that anytime a man is with his wife, there has to be darkness. You, on the other hand, and your people, you're not modest. Why? We saw proof. You, uh, you already kissed uh, Rachel when you came here. You're not even married to her. How did you do that? So they switched the flip. Or they, they flipped the script on him. Why? Because they needed it to be dark. So as soon as they constant the marriage, they, they, they can't uh, they can't see he can't see her. Then the midrash says. Yaakov calls Rachel and Leah signals like she's Rachel. But then in the morning, he sees it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And initially, he's upset. Naturally, he says, liar, the daughter of a liar. Cheater, the daughter of a cheater. You know, the uh, uh, deceitful one daughter of a deceitful woman, the daughter of a deceitful man. Didn't I call you Rachel? And you said that it's you? And Leah says something that at first will take you, whoa, what did she say? Leah says to Yaakov, is there such a thing as a Torah scholar, a Talmit Chacham, who doesn't have students? I learned from you. I'm your student. I learned from you. You've been here for the last seven years giving divrei Torah to, you know, to everybody. I listen. I learned from you. Why'd you learn from me? You said the story where in order not to lie to your father and get the blessing because your mom told you to go get the blessing you want to honor her. Right? So what'd you do when your father said, Hey, Sav, you said, Hey, Sav is your firstborn. It's not you. I did the same thing. Why? For the same reason you did it. You said, Esav is your firstborn in order not to lie. I said what I said in order not to lie. You did it because you wanted to follow what your mom said. For honoring your parents. I also had to honor my parents. My father told me I have to do this. And this also answers us 
why Rachel did it. She was honoring her father, but even more so, she was also saving her sister from trouble. Meaning that this is not something that she did in order to embarrass Yaakov. And in fact, it didn't embarrass Yaakov. Because Yaakov was looking to get married for the sake of bringing the 12 tribes. In order to bring the 12 tribes, he had to marry both of them one way or another. He had to marry both of them. But he only realized that after the fact. Hence the reason why in a few weeks when we read the, uh, the blessings that Yaakov gave to, uh, to his son Yosef, right before, right before he dies, he prays towards the head of the bed and he thanks Hashem. The Torah asks, or the Midrash asks, why did he pray to the head of the bed? To thank Hashem for giving him the head of the family, which is Leah. Leah, give him Leah. Why? Because she gave him the most kids. She gave him the most kids. She gave him six kids, which is the com- combined of all the other three. Three wives that he had. So, the Yaakov initially didn't realize, wait a minute, how could this be? Liar, deceit, this, that. But then when he saw that she brought him a child, he realized this is a blessed marriage. He realized this is, this is what, what Hashem wanted. Initially, people were making fun of her, saying she's a cheater, she's a liar. But then they all realized when everyone saw the kids that are coming, everyone realized, including Yaakov, this is what Hashem wanted the whole time. Now, as far as Rachel is doing, again, Rachel is also a prophet. She also knew the 12 tribes have to come from, uh, from Yaakov. She also knew that our father commanded her and she has to fulfill the Torah and honor her father. But she also knew that at some point, she also has to be one of the wives. And especially since there was mercy from heaven that she only had to wait an extra week. Because after the marriage of Leah, if you look at the verses, it says that um, Levan says to Yaakov, you want to stay? You can, after the, uh, the marriage ceremonies are done in seven days, you can marry Rachel. Meaning that Yaakov didn't have to wait another seven years. He had to wait seven days, which from there, by the way, that's like the Sheva Brachot, the seven blessings that you have after marriage. From there we also learn, not only Sheva Brachot, but also that you don't combine two celebrations. says that you don't combine a Chol moed with a wedding. Chol moed is Chol moed. you have your wedding a different time. You don't combine multiple blessings, multiple celebrations. So from there also, he had to wait one week, and then he married Rachel. So it's not like they had to wait another seven years. He just had to work another seven years. But either way, the whole uh, one day saw how it all worked out. They saw that this was literally the hand of God. So there wasn't anything about embarrassing him or uh, or hurting him or doing a mitzvah in a way of a sin. She was trying to follow the laws of God by honoring our father, by being a uh, forgiving, by, uh, uh, you know, being patient, and in essence, by giving the benefit of the doubt and also saving uh, our, our sister the embarrassment that she was getting because her sister was crying, her sister was crying that the the prophecy orig- that they got originally was that Yaakov was uh, going to uh, marry the uh, the firstborn, the firstborn. Uh, I'm sorry that um, the uh, the older of uh, of Yitzchak's sons, the firstborn of Yitzchak's sons, it was clear. The firstborn of Yitzchak's sons was going to marry the. Uh, the uh, 
the um, the youngest of uh, uh, the daughters of of of, uh, of Lavan. So when she was crying, she was crying because at that time Esav was the firstborn. So the Magid Miduvna says that what Leah did is the prayers that she prayed literally overcame the you know the original judgment overcame the blessings and the prayers of even our sister Rachel and where Hashem actually allowed Yaakov to become the firstborn when he bought the firstborn rights from Esav hence the reason why uh Leah says that is this is a thing as a uh, a firstborn as a uh, rabbi that doesn't have students I did exactly like you did you followed your uh, your rabbi you followed your parents you did everything you did I did exactly what you did I followed everything I followed everything that you did and I also followed the prophecy that we had the prophecy was you have to marry the firstborn you're the firstborn I had to marry you that was my judgment I was supposed to marry the firstborn you are the firstborn that's why I had to marry you and that's also the reason why for Rachel she couldn't be the first one to marry him because she wasn't she was no longer the firstborn so that's again one of the uh couple of the different uh chachamim whether it's the midrash from a couple of thousand years ago or it's magid miduvna from a few hundred years ago or others all combined into one to give us a, a more complete answer of uh, the righteousness of uh, of hashem and his uh and his servants next question uh my neighbor is marrying off her daughter Baruch Hashem she will be having a separate dancing at her wedding Baruch Hashem but not separate seating uh it will be a buffet style wedding is this allowed uh listen if it's a very from family then certainly it's better for it to be separate seating but if it's not if it's a ballet chuva uh if they're already doing separate dancing that's already a, a miracle of miracle you just say mismo letoda the Taylim 100 thank God that, that this is the case the only thing I would recommend is to try to make sure that a husband sits next to his wife and his wife sits to next to somebody else's wife not next to somebody else's husband so the seating should be arranged by the the the, the bride and groom or whoever's arranging the wedding where it's wives sit next to wives and husbands sit next to husbands meaning that even though they're all sitting together on the same table you know you have let's say you have uh, 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 eight seats. Each man is sitting right to a, next to his wife on one side, and somebody else's husband next to another. So he's permitted to sit next to both of them. Uh, that that certainly is uh, 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 much more ideal. Uh, next question, uh, Rabbi: How is it possible to read in Bereshit five, where Hanoch walked with God? And that God took him and not pay more attention to those words uh, those words were my first light in Torah uh, since then I've wanted to learn more about Hanukh uh, what did uh, what did he do to please Hashem so much okay so there is not much that we can learn from Hanukh we can learn about Hanukh and the reason why is because Hanukh was extraordinarily righteous. Uh, he got to the highest level of Kedusha by secluding himself in a cave and eliminating any contact with society in order to elevate his neshama by learning Torah, by learning the, the, the word of Hashem. 
and eliminating any possibility of any sin whatsoever so much so that Hashem decided that if you're so righteous but you're not delivering this righteousness and teaching anybody this righteousness there's no purpose for you to stay in the world so Hashem took Hanoch and turned him into Malach Memtet uh, Malach Memtet is the highest level angel that is uh, also sometimes called is called God in the Torah he's not God but he's in essence one of the angels that speaks on behalf of God uh, Malach uh, we're not allowed to even say his real name some people write his name sometimes for some reason I'm not really sure if they're aware that they're not allowed he's a very very holy Malach that's Chanuch that's Chanuch Chanuch we have no problem to say no any word that's mentioned in the written Torah there's no problem saying anytime but if it's a uh, uh, obviously aside from the name of Hashem that you can only say when you're reading the Torah you're teaching it but as far as other things you can say but there are certain things that the names of angels that and also certain names of God and so on that you're not allowed to say under normal conditions and sometimes ever either way Hanoch became so righteous so holy that he sanctified himself that there was no longer a purpose for him to stay in this world because he wasn't teaching anybody else and the Gemara says that Avraham Avinu had the ability to be much higher than Hanoch but he chose to serve Hashem by going to do Kiruv and that actually limited his spiritual growth because he couldn't seclude himself from everybody in fact he did the exact opposite he would invite people he would teach them Torah he would convert people to become Noahides that's what the Gemara says in the uh, multiple places that the uh, uh, Avram Avinu was converting the men and the uh, Sarah was converting the women what does it mean converting there's no Judaism yet there was Noahide laws so there was either idol worshipers or Noahides so Avram Avinu was getting people to be to, to, to observe the Noahide laws and but because of that because he was busy with helping people do tshuva to abandon idolatry to learn about Gehenom that's what the Gemara that's what the Zohar Kadosh Parashat uh, Vayera says that that's what Avraham Avinu was teaching them teaching them about Gehenom teaching them about suffering and what's going to happen to them if they stay if they stay uh, idol worshippers that was the first year we would give people about Gehenom first time they just met them they just ate okay let me tell you about Gehenom that's what the, the, the Zohar Kadosh says and because of that because he was spending so much time teaching he couldn't elevate himself more spiritually to the same extent that would even supersede Chanoch. But that ended up becoming favorable in the eyes of Hashem because that was actually the ultimate purpose. Hashem doesn't want you to come to this world and just serve yourself and sanctify yourself. He wants you to use the Torah in order to share it with other people. Learn a lot of Torah, but also share it too. That's what the Gemara in Masechet Avodah I believe it's page 17 says that a person that learns Torah and doesn't teach Torah is like a person that doesn't have a God meaning that you have to learn from a Torah how to emulate Hashem be giving how could you learn his word and not give and not share so Hanoch uh, wasn't obligated to give because this was before the official uh, giving of the Torah of Mount Sinai but he would not he was not able to uh fulfill uh, a purpose beyond what he did because there was no purpose for him in the world he didn't want to be involved with people so certainly we can learn about him that uh you know that he became what he became but we can't really learn from him in a sense that uh you know we you know a person is not supposed to seclude himself 
from society to such a point where they know the entire Torah, but they don't want to share it. So a person needs to help people do tshuva, get people to come back to Hashem, like Avraham Avinu, like Avraham Avinu did. But uh, as far as uh, one other thing I could say is that there is a uh, book that the Christians love to quote, which they call the, the Book of Enoch, uh, or Hanoch. Uh, this is not a book that a Jew is allowed to read. Uh, multiple reasons. One of them is because it's not divinely inspired. It was uh, not added to the Tanakh. And there are certain things that are problematic. Uh, that uh, a person is not supposed to read it. Of course, the Christian idol worshippers love this book because this makes them feel like they have something extra. But for, uh, this is nothing extra. This is mistakes that are leading to more mistakes but needless to say it's a uh, you know it's a the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah says stolen water are sweeter people always want what is unreachable what is beyond so now I said you're not allowed five people are gonna go right away and start reading it why because people are stupid they want what they're not allowed to have same thing with uh, with uh, sometimes you have I have to uh, argue with uh, different uh uh, people that uh, are not ready to convert, but they want to observe all the mitzvot. They want to observe Shabbat. They want to live like Jews, but they don't want to convert to being Jews. Or, you know, other things. People always want what they're not allowed to have. There is plenty of Torah. There are plenty of, uh, of people that dafka want to go after what they're not supposed to do. Like uh, Bale Tshuva, that want to go learn Zohar and Kabbalah. Or women that want to learn Gemara or Zohar, or all types of things. These are... Thing, these are uh, 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 things that a person is not supposed to do. So the same thing goes with the book of Hanoch, the, the book of Enoch. Certainly it's not a book for uh, anybody that's watching this year to, uh, to read, and certainly it's not a book for anybody else to read, but of course people are going to do whatever they want. I'm just simply the messenger. Uh, next question. Are you allowed to eat fruits and vegetables from Israel this year? Uh, can you please explain the rules of Shemitah? The rules of Shemitah are way too detailed for me to give you a shiur about it right now, especially since it was last year. If the fruits are from, from now, yeah, it's not a problem. Uh, it's not a problem. It was a problem last year. Anything that you're getting right now is a, uh, typically not a problem, but generally speaking, it's a, uh, the exporting of fruit is not such a big uh, business in Israel. Uh, they have to keep it for themselves. Uh, you know, whereas most people that are buying fruit today, even if you're buying it at a kosher market, they're not getting it from Israel. They're getting it from Texas. They're getting it from Florida. They're getting it from California and wherever there's still water. Uh, they're not getting it from uh, Israel. Um, I rabbi, should one approach their rabbi if an answer their rabbi advises leaves them with more questions? Will it be of any benefit for the Talmud changing their way uh, they interpret the world around them to, to match the rabbi's way. Okay, I think I understand what your question is. Uh, as far as if a person if a person asks the rabbi a question and the rabbi gives them an answer and the answer creates more questions, yes, if the uh, student wants more answers, then he certainly has to ask more questions, sure. Uh, but again, one thing I always recommend for, for, for people that are asking questions is a, uh, ask questions that are relevant to your rabbi and not relevant to what somebody else said. Like, don't ask me questions about what some other rabbi said. Oh, rabbi, look, he said such and such in this video. Can you tell me why? I don't know why he said what he said, and I don't have the time to go watch his video. 
So, and this is also not really appropriate. Uh, so it's, it's like asking your boss about why, you know, some other boss gave his, uh, his, his employees a raise. It's inappropriate. It's bad manners. So first thing is, if a person is asking his rabbi a question and his rabbi gave him an answer and the answer created more questions, certainly he should go back to the same rabbi and ask him more questions. That's not a problem. But he should, number one, make sure that's the case. Number two, do some homework, meaning don't be one of these people that ex- that expects to be spoon-fed like a baby, meaning that if you got an answer from the rabbi and the answer created more questions, do a little work to try to find the answers on your own from different things that the rabbi quoted. Well, if he quoted a midrash or he quoted a commentary or he quoted a gemara, go open the book of the page that he said or the, or the sages or something to try to find some of the answers on your own because that's going to make you more, uh, you know, more complete and it's going to force you to learn much more. Many times people want to be spoon-fed every little bit of information and what ends up happening is that they end up losing their appreciation for the Torah and they end up forgetting the Torah because they didn't toil for it. So what I would recommend is if you got something from the rabbi already, that's some type of answer, that is certainly a starting stage for you to try to investigate a little bit more on your own. See if you have the divine assistance, the Siat Dishmaya, where Hashem sees. Now, you ask the question, that's the first base of effort. You've tried looking at, you know, reviewing the answer that you got to investigate more on your own by toiling over my Torah and opening some books. So, that in essence gives you the merit for Hashem to show you the answer in different places. Now, after you've searched and you still have some more questions, Certainly, you should go back to the same rabbi. Tom, listen, you, I asked you this question. You gave me this answer. I looked for more information about this answer because I had some other questions. This is what I found in such and such places, but I still have this other question and I couldn't find the answer. Can you help me with that? That is a fantastic Talmud. That is a fantastic student that actually wants to grow to be a Talmud Chacham and not somebody that wants to be spoon-fed like a baby at 50 years old. So that's the thing that I would recommend to people. Most people are going to completely forget everything I just said to you and literally delete it from their mind and continue being little spiritual babies, being spoon-fed, everything uh, for 50 years. Rabbi, can I eat this? Yeah. Rabbi, can I go there? Yes. Gabbai this? Rabbi, this. Fine, I don't have a problem answering the questions. No rabbi has a problem answering questions. But a person has to help themselves in order to grow. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't do enough. Why? Because they want fast information. And the outcome of fast information is that it loses its value in the eyes of people. So always ask, but always do homework too. Ask, get answers, you have more questions, which is a natural thing you're supposed to have. Meaning your natural inclination should be that the more you learn, the more questions you have. It literally will never end. It will never end. No subject has an ending in the Torah. No subject. Like, whether it's what we learned today, no ending. We could have a shield from here until a million and a half years more. It will never end. If you go into more sources, more things, more, more steps, more, more, more. The Torah is wider than the ocean. So, in essence, the more developed a Talmud is, the more they'll have questions. But again... 
You also have to ask questions that actually matter to you, questions that are significant. But if a person wants to delve into a subject, literally they could focus on one particular subject for a million and a half years and they wouldn't finish. But so the key is to try to help yourself and try. Ask the rabbi, get an answer. You have some more questions, then ask a, uh, do some homework. Don't be also, uh, third thing is, don't be one of these Talmidim that do what unfortunately they do in many yeshivot, even most yeshivot today, which is what's called Pilpulim. Pilpulim, Arab Vadia and many Chachamim, Arab Shach, spoke heavily against it, which unfortunately became the ways of yeshivot. I'm not really sure uh, uh, why, but uh, Pilpulim is in essence creating questions for the sake of creating questions. Like it's purposeless questions just for the sake of mental stimulation. You already know the answer, but you, you start asking hypothetical questions or things that are just to, for the sake of uh, uh, mental stimulation. Don't be one of those. Ask questions with a purpose. Ask questions that matter to you that are going to get to some type of point. Uh, so that's the third thing I would say. And with the combination of those few steps, certainly a person that would do them and follow those steps will become somebody much more than he is or she is now. Next question, question, if a person is cooking parve soup and used dairy serving spoon, uh, does the parve pot become parve or remain parve or does it become dairy? Uh, if the, no, the, the, the remains, it remains parve. It remains parve. For it to turn into dairy, it would have to be a lot of different steps. It would be, have to boil. It, it, in so many words, uh, it remains parve. Uh, Michael, on Monday and Thursday, when a Torah is read as part of the three times per week that was uh, reinstituted by Ezra, is there an extra holiness or help from heaven available on those days for giving shulim or studying, for example? Um, I mean, as far as the uh, the, uh, the institution of, of reading a Torah uh, during those three times, is that there, so there's never three days in a row where there's uh, somebody that doesn't learn Torah. So if somebody goes to shul, then they're going to certainly going to hear the Torah at least every uh, every every few days. Uh, so that's the reason. As far as their extra holiness, certainly when a person makes more mitzvot, there's more holiness around them. There's more angels protecting him. Uh, so when a person goes to shul on Monday and Thursday or on Shabbat, they're able to make more mitzvot than they're able to make during the rest of the week because there's extra blessings that are made for the uh, in, you know reading of the Torah. Uh, so that already gives them additional strength. Further, Rav uh, Yosef Shani Shichye uh, also talks about how there are special angels that a person creates when he, uh, every time he creates, uh, he does a mitzvah, but even more so when he reads the weekly parasha. So when a person reads the weekly parasha, uh, whether it's on Monday or, or, or Sunday, or he creates angels that will give him a lot more strength for the entire week. Uh, this is the reason why it's better for a person to read, to do his uh, uh, reading of the parasha the earlier part of the week rather than the latter part of the week like most people do it because those angels give him extra strength to learn more Torah, to understand more, more blessings for Parnassah and so on. Uh, so more blessings, more learning, more Torah is always going to yield uh, more good. Uh, Jeremy, in the, uh, in, if the Avod didn't have the future Torah portions, how can they fill, how can their tefillin be kosher? Since we know that Hashem loved Avraham Avinu, 
since he kept everything. Uh, so the oral Torah, the oral Torah uh, is something that was already available since creation. Uh, Hashem created the world with by writing the Torah with a uh, 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 black fire on white fire. This is Gemara Maseret Chagiga. 974 generations before he created the world. Now what does it mean that he wrote the Torah? If he wrote the Torah, that means that he uh, has also the, uh, the, the five books of Moses. So how could that be? If he already knows a story, then how did Moses and the rest of the people have free choice? So the, the way that Chachamim explain it is that initially, Hashem created the world, He created the Torah by writing the entire written Torah from beginning to end, the same five books of Moses that you have right now, but it was all a single word, meaning there was no separation between the letters. And every single thing that ever exists in the past, present, or future was inside those letters, inside that text. But again, it was only a single word, if you will, because there was no separation between the paragraphs, there was no separation between the words, there was no Bereshit Barai Lokim et Aretz. There was, you know, there was that one word from beginning all the way to the end of Zota Bracha. Now, after the, uh, 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 this also included all of the rules. The rules which include, you know, eating uh, kosher, uh, the rules that include Tarat Mishpacha. So f- those rules, that part of the oral Torah that's within the written Torah, it's hidden within it, uh, everything is connected to the, to the to, uh, written Torah, that part he gave that oral Torah, he gave already to Adam Arishon. And from there, uh, uh, the, the Torah was transmitted, the oral Torah was transmitted from Adam Arishon to Shet, uh, eventually to Metushelach, Metushelach to, uh, um, uh, to Noach, Noach to Shem, and eventually to, uh, to Avram, and uh, Avram to Yitzchak, Yaakov, and so on. The 12 tribes, and then eventually the rest of Am Yisrael. So now, the uh, the oral Torah was available throughout all of that time, and in fact, it was much more extensive than what we are familiar with today. The Gemara in Masechet Abu Dazara says that the tractate of Abu Dazara that uh, we have today is five chapters, I believe, uh, five chapters. The tractate of Abu Dazara that Avraham Avinu had was four hundred chapters, and some say it was six hundred chapters. Meaning his oral Torah was much more extensive than ours. Much more extensive. Rabbi Yudana, see, when he took the Mishnah, he didn't take the entire Mishnah and uh, all of the Baretot uh, that, that were existed. He only took some of them. That's why you'll have the Gemara that mentions Baretot. And uh, there's, there's all types of uh, uh, additions. In addition to the Mishnah, there's other things that weren't included in the six parts of the Mishnah. The oral Torah, that, those six are the core foundation, but there's a whole lot more that was not included. And even before that, there was a lot more at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, and there's a lot at the time of, uh, of, um, of uh, uh, Rabbi Akiva, there was a lot more. Point being is, what we have today is the essence of Torah, the essence of Torah, and it's not even the same level of essence as the previous generations of uh, you know, Abi Akiva and his 24,000 students, we don't have the Torah of the 24,000 students. We have the Torah of the five students that he had to restart everything with. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Mir Baranes, uh, Rabbi Yoseh, Rabbi Yudah. 
so we, we have a, uh, a handful of students. The 24,000 students that die, we don't have their Torah. So we only have parts of the teachings of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Rabbi Akiva, but we have almost nothing of the Zugot, Shmaya and Aftalion, uh, the uh, the uh, Antigonosh Isocho, uh, all of the great uh, sages that you are mentioned in Pirkei Avot, most of them we don't have their teachings. Needless to say, we don't have all the detailed teachings of uh, David Melech of uh, of uh, the uh, uh, the other prophets that preceded them. The Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, you know, we have uh, or his generation. We have uh, again, we have the five books of Moses, but the oral aspect, the development that happened in previous generation is much, much more than what we have today. So now, that oral Torah already was from the beginning. Therefore, Avraham Avinu was able to use uh, the book of creation in order to create things, create cows, create uh, every, you know, on demand, create all types of things. The Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin also has uh, certain Chachamim that used to create a calf every Friday in order to eat on Shabbat. Uh, there was a certain Chacham, a certain uh, Tana that created a person uh, to, to help him uh, do things, like a servant. Uh, but then another Chacham killed him. <laughs> uh, there's also the, uh, the, one of the Chachamim from just a few hundred years ago, Miprag, uh, made a golem, made a, also a, a person. But they, you, they can't speak though. Per, to speak is only done by someone that has a Neshama. Either way, there are certain teachings that are part of the oral Torah that I've always been or are still here even. Uh, you need to know how to use them, but point being is, so that part, Avraham Avinu had. And is the reason the Zohar says, so since Avraham Avinu had all of this, he also had the fact that Chachamim, Paskin, that a, uh, that a uh, Noahide is forbidden from keeping Shabbat. So what did he do? How could he keep Shabbat and not keep Shabbat? So the Zohar says, Avram would create a cow every Shabbat in order to break Shabbat. That was the way he would. Uh, that's the way he would break Shabbat by creating something. Not to create on Shabbat, so you know, would create a cow every Shabbat. So when you tell people today, you know, you know that are not Jewish, you're not allowed to keep Shabbat. Like, no, no, Avram is my forefather. No, uh, Shabbat was given to everybody. You know, it's it's all it's very frustrating because they have no idea. They have no idea that. Even if they want to say all the things that they want to say, they're still not following the law. <laughs> Avraham Avinu didn't keep Shabbat to the same extent as a Jew keeps Shabbat now because he wasn't allowed. But as far as the other things that he was allowed to keep, having a mezuzah, having tefillin, having all those other things, there was knowledge of those things. There was knowledge of those things. Again, the mitzvah of, uh, of tefillin doesn't say uh, uh, things that are uh, uh, part of the... Uh, narration of a story that uh that you know uh, didn't exist it's not like for example uh something that happened a conversation that happened between moshe and uh, paro uh so you know when you read my israel it's in essence hashem c- commanding us to love him with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your resources uh and he after that if you don't do it and you worship idols then hashem will bring uh, uh suffering damage disaster famine death horrible genome in this world i honestly don't understand how people are not scared to death just by reading shema israel uh people say oh no i i don't i don't believe in punishment do you read shema israel shema israel the whole, the whole shema israel whole shema israel is scarier than, than death i don't know i don't know what people are reading these days but anyway so that that's not a problem to have it uh in in the tefillin at the time of avraham avinu 
but uh, again there is a uh, the bigger part is to understand that that written part of the Torah that written part of the Torah that already existed from the beginning but it was a single word when did it get separated over time when Hashem gave Parashat Itro when at Mount Sinai when uh, it's spoken about the Parashat Itro and uh, Hashem gives the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu and he tells them where to separate the words so Bereshit you know at the uh, starts with the, the Torah starts with a bet because Aleph is only Hashem then you have bet Resh um, uh, uh, Aleph uh, Shin Yu Taf uh, 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 so you have a uh, uh, Taf stop put a space there Moshe okay then you have bara bet resh hey okay stop over there separate okay elokim the, the youth cave of k stop separate and he tells him okay after seven words after seven words stop the sentence that's the end of the sentence that's the end of the sentence bereshit is is wisdom the reason why that sentence has stops after seven words is to remind you that hashem created the, the world in six days and stopped on the seventh uh there are the uh you know seven represents many different things uh point being is every single detail of not only where to separate the sentences but the vowels that are used the sounds that are made the reason why there is a certain amount of letters in every word why every sentence is Hashem decided for it to start with a specific letter versus a different letter where it seems superfluous for it to be there it seems extra to be there all of those details were taught to Moshe Rabbeinu because he received the entire Torah. What we received at Mount Sinai as a people is the essence of a Torah. And the essence of a Torah included both the written Torah and the oral Torah. But the oral Torah had to be developed by the Chachamim through further study in order to make us partners in a Torah. Hashem left certain things for us to develop simply things that are not finished certain things are finished they're they're called Torah Sinai or Moshe Sinai uh, in the language of the Gemara which is a law that doesn't even require a verse in the Torah this is the law for example the laws of Tfilin there are nearly a thousand halachot relating to Tfilin and there is the, the, the fact that Tfilin will always be uh black square uh you know from a, a a kosher animal and so on and so forth many of these dinim many of these laws are not related to specific verses they're called Moshe Sinai, meaning we have verses that tell us that we have to have to fill in they have to put them on our head put them on our arm next to our heart but certain details have always been known because this is what we got at Mo- from Moshe Rabbeinu it does not require a verse there are certain laws that do require a verse then there are certain laws that have to be developed over time through toil because they cannot be answered before the question actually exists so this is the parts that Hashem in essence gave the Chachamim the opportunity to be partners just like he gave Am Yisrael the opportunity to be partners in the physical creation by giving us the mitzvah of Brit Milah having a baby is born with the foreskin and in order to become a partner with God in the physical creation we do a circumcision we do a brit milah why didn't Hashem just create us 
all like Moshe Rabbeinu, like Adam Arishon, without a foreskin, because he wanted us to be a, a, a partners in the physical creation. Partners in the physical creation by, in essence, creating us imperfect. And by having the Brit Milah, we become perfect. Same concept as the Torah, where Hashem gave us a Torah that is, has to be developed through further study. Has to be developed by the Chachamim. And there was a certain power, in essence, given to the Chachamim. There are verses in the Torah that represent that. Point being is that there are certain things that Avram Avinu and the previous generations had that is beyond the scope of anything that's available today. Uh, it's only going to be it's, uh, available once Mashiach comes. There is even a Torah that even nobody ever had, which is the Torah of Shemaim, which is what people will learn when they go up to Shemaim, uh, if they have the merit. There's a certain Torah that doesn't exist right now, meaning it's, uh, nobody can see it in this world. Nobody has seen it. It's only Torah that's in, uh, in, in Shemaim. Uh, and again, they ask, what does Hashem do? What does Hashem do? He toils in Torah. There's a certain time of the day that he runs the world, judges the world, and there's a certain time of the day that Hashem toils in Torah. What does he toil in? Beyond our comprehension. Beyond our comprehension. So that's uh, that. All right, you guys are asking uh, some big questions today. How do you save a Orthodox Jew from homosexuality? Oh, how do you save an Orthodox Jew from, a, from homosexuality? If he's an Orthodox Jew, then he's certainly not going to be homosexual. But uh, if he is a, you know, uh, a person is a, uh, uh, attracted to the same gender, then certainly that person needs to learn more Musal uh, to understand the, the will of Hashem and the punishment for when a person does not go according to the will of Hashem. Uh, I would also recommend for them to uh, read different parts of the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin that talk about the uh, uh, talk about homosexuality and what Hashem thinks of it and what kind of punishments uh, they uh, are going to get. Uh, there is a... Um, let me see where it is. One second. Yeah, okay, so you have a Mishnah. Mishnah Masechet Sanhedrin, page 54a, and it continues for a while. Uh, talks about homosexuality, bestiality, how it's unnatural, uh, and so on. So certainly that could help learning about how it is not only forbidden, but uh, it's a, at the time of the Sanhedrin, a person would get death penalty uh, from it, the worst type of death penalty nonetheless. Uh, today, when a person acts on homosexuality, they're in essence giving themselves a karet, and also a divine death penalty, meaning that they are guaranteeing themselves that they will die young, uh, meaning earlier than they're supposed to, that it was originally allotted to them. If, let's say, 120 years were allotted to them, they're going to die before the age of 50 uh, or 60. Uh, they're also guaranteeing themselves that they have kids. Those kids are likely to die. They're guaranteeing themselves that uh, they will lose money and have a troubled life, to say the least. And also that after this life is over, They'll go to Gainom and they won't come out. So they'll, you know, they're in essence guaranteeing themselves hell on earth and after. So the more a person learns about how much Hashem detests uh, a homosexuality by learning the, the parts of the Gemara that talk about it, by learning the Shurim that we talked about, that have multiple Shurim that talk about homosexuality, the more a person learns uh, these things alongside 
learning about uh, the issues of Kedusha, of Tikkun Abrit, uh, the more a person is going to sanctify themselves. Typically, the uh, person today that has uh, this issue, it's because they were already an immoral person. Before they so-called discovered they're homosexual, they were already a promiscuous person, even if that promiscuity came from themselves. Uh, and we'll learn actually next week's parashat, uh, that a uh, parashat Vayeshev, about the uh, issue of onanut, of a uh, onanism, the, uh, the issue of wasting seed that the sons of Yehuda uh, sinned with, the first two sons of Yehuda sinned with uh, what's called onanism, named after their, his first son, On, uh, and uh, they wasted seed, uh, despite the fact that they were married, and Hashem killed both of them, showing us that this uh, obligation of protecting your breed and not wasting seed and not being promiscuous is an obligation both on Jews and Gentiles, even if that promiscuity is with yourself. Now, what ends up happening is when people are promiscuous with themselves or with others, it creates a ruach tum'ah, an impure spirit falls upon them and leads them to become more inclined to do more sins. And the more they sin further, the stronger the ruach tum'ah has control over them that will incline them to do something even more taboo. So much so that Ramban, Nachmanides, and also Rabbi Nachman Mebreslev also bring different sources from the Torah and the Gemara and so on that say that this is where homosexuality and bestiality begin with. Eventually he's with himself, then he is with the opposite gender in a promiscuous way, without marriage, without a uh, purity, then he is promiscuous with multiple women, then that's no longer enough, then he wants to be with men, the, uh, the same gender, then that's no longer enough, and eventually he's going to go with animals. And this is something that is something that we've seen in society, we've seen in, in the world. It is not a big secret that there are literally millions and millions of people that have become uh, so promiscuous that they literally are with animals. They're with the same gender. They're pedophiles. There is uh, uh, so much uh, you know, immoral things that are happening in the world today that it's literally become a standard, a standard uh, that, uh, you know, topic of conversation. Uh, and what they're trying to do today is they're actually trying to normalize the most immoral, horrible things in the world. Like there's one, you know, wicked, wicked person that used to be a professor at a university who wrote a book of how uh, we should uh, uh, change the description of pedophilia to attraction to minors. Uh, and, and how it's not really such a big deal. It's just that you're attracted to kids sick people. Now again, if you look at the Gemara, you look at the Midrashim, you'll see that some of the, uh, you know, the previous generation, the most righteous people in the world, married during very young ages. You know, David Melech married Batsheva. Batsheva was six years old. You know, a, uh, 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 Leah, uh, Rivka was three years old. Uh, they, uh, um, different, different tzaddikim and tzaddikot were very, very young. But again, the body was different physically back then. The world was different very differently back then. Everything was different. You cannot compare us today to those times of three, four thousand years ago. The way you know, this is already is something that's discussed by the sages that uh, you know that's uh, in the Gemara that you know a person that's not, you know goes with a child is a uh, is a criminal. Uh, pedophilia is forbidden. 
uh, already for you know it's not uh, it's not something that that could be compared to the King David and uh, and 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 Itzchak Avinu and so on. But the point being is is that today people want to pretend as if we are in the same physiological shape as we were back then, as as if it's perfectly normal. Pedophilia is normal. Rape is normal. Uh, homosexuality is normal. Uh, all the filthiest things are normal, and now also. Uh, bestiality, which is people with animals, is also normalizing, and this is something that uh, you know we had to do research for uh, on at some point as part of the research on this whole tikkun abrit stuff, uh, and you know the issues of uh, of bestiality has grown exponentially over the years. There are literally a countries countries that have bestiality as a normal part of their society. To the point that it has changed the physical makeup uh, of the people to a certain extent. For example, uh, Brazil. Brazil is known as a very promiscuous state. What a lot of people don't know is that there is an enormous amount of bestiality in Brazil. Enormous amount. So much so that the highest rate of erectile cancer uh, is there. Is there. Also dysfunctioning and so on. Uh, there is an enormous amount of uh, uh, bestiality in the Arab countries with donkeys and, and sheep. There's a lot of uh, um, uh, you know, bestiality in America. There's at least 3-4 million people that admit to being with animals on a regular basis. There are even hotels that cater to these sick people in Las Vegas and other places in the United States. There are places in uh, different European countries that literally have hotels and all types of like gatherings highlighting this filth of people with animals and of course there's always an article or two that you'll find on the internet here and there of some sick puppy that uh married his puppy or her horse or some other crazy person that ended up getting killed as a result of that where they when they found a dead body they found a dead body you know in the middle of shemishmo an act with their animal and this is something that you know is is a uh, a horrible thing for society, not only because of the immorality aspect of it and disgustingness of it, but also it is a—it's showing us how far we are from where we need to be. Needless to say, it also it harms the animals. The animals many times uh, become uh, uh, um, um, infertile uh, at that point; they're no longer able to breed. Point being is, is that this is part of what's happening in the world today. Uh, and it's uh, it all starts with the individual, the individual that is not rebuked when he tells people that are important to him, people that are familiar with him, people that are in a position of knowledge uh, that he has uh, or she has uh, unusual feelings towards something that's forbidden, uh, something that's lokedarka, that's not the uh, normal way. They're, you know, they're, they're not attracted to the same, to the opposite gender. The opposite, they're attracted to the same gender. And those people accept that person as is, and even that give them support and enablement. Enablement that this person now says, oh, since everybody accepted me coming out of my tomb or closet or whatever they, they, it is, uh, you know, then, then uh, it's a... Um, I'll continue expressing myself. And these people end up ruining their lives. Ruining their lives. Some of them, you know, transform themselves and into different things. And of course, 
you know, the, the Ruach Tuma, the spirit of impurity that's on, that's on those people is going to tell them, this is the way you always were. You already knew this when you were five. You already felt this when you were this. Sipure Safta. Fairy tales. Uh, you know, but the point being is, is that, yes, is there a person that's attracted uh, to the same gender? Uh, it's not an attraction. It's, it's simply more uh, being more connected to somebody because having more in common with them where a male is more feminine. Or a woman is more masculine. Uh, but uh, as far as this, uh, you know, even if a person wants to say there is an attraction there, even if there's an attraction, it still doesn't permit it. Why? You're attracted to somebody else's wife. Does that permit you to go sleep with her? No. You're attracted to, to, to some dog. You're, is that, that allow you? No. You're, you're attracted to fire. You like to burn things up. You're a pyromaniac. Does that mean you're allowed to do it? No. You're attracted to murder. You like to see blood. King David liked to see blood. King David was a red-haired Jinji, and he also was born at a certain time that he was attracted to blood. Just like Esav. Esav picked murder. King David picked doing Brit Milah, being a Moel, and also checking, being the rabbi that was an expert in Tarat Mishpacha, so the women would bring him anytime they had questions of, ta- of Tara. So there are certain people that are attracted to certain things. No problem. There is a way to do things in a kosher way. Just because you're attracted to something doesn't mean that whatever you're attracted to is, is allowed. So a person needs to know what's allowed, what's not allowed. And if the Torah says it's not allowed, it doesn't make a difference that you're attracted to it or not. You have to find a way to do something that will give you the same fulfillment in a permissible way. In a permissible way. And Bezat Hashem, if this person, at the very least, listens to what I just said over the last 10-15 minutes... And watches some of the shurim that I made about the topic, they could very well end up being like the same person that wrote a letter on our website a few years ago that when I met him, he was homosexual and believed that homosexuality was normal as a teenager. And Baruch Hashem today is a Talmud Chacham, learns Torah every single day, from Jew, uh, Tzadik, Kodesh, Kodesh Kodeshim. It's uh, somebody that I wish for, for, for any one of us, myself included, to. For our daughters to marry such a person. But this person used to think, 10 years ago or less, that uh, homosexuality was perfectly normal. Today you meet this person, you're not even going to have an inclination, a thought that this is the case. Why? person sanctified himself. And he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter on the website. Uh, certainly it's uh, something that gave chizuk to some of my other students that had this issue and I sent it to them and they read it and they all said that they uh, uh, they got chizuk from the letter that, that they know now it's possible through learning Torah that is has an emphasis on Musal and obviously Musal includes Tikkun Abrit and all the other things that we teach but this this certainly is a curable spiritual ailment but if you tell them, I love you anyway, I accept you no matter what you do, you have murdered him with your own hands. You've murdered him or her with your own hands. Why? Because you simply gave them a permission to do whatever they want. And I know that this is the uh, fashion in the world today, and, but that's also why those very same parents regret the day they were born later on in life. When those kids don't bring them grandchildren, when those kids continue acting weirder and weirder over time, when those kids, uh, you know, end up becoming uh, an embarrassment of the family, even for those parents that pretend like they're proud of their kids that has a boyfriend and he's a boy, 
I promise you that if he wasn't, uh, if he didn't have a boyfriend and he had a, a wife instead, those parents would be much happier. Nobody's happy with a homosexual uh, child or, or anything like that. They just want to pretend. Uh, next, can you say Bachav Shakol over water and have in mind Refuashlema for all of the loved ones that are needed? Sure, yes, this is Gula. It's Gula to change the decree. Uh, uh, that's a bad decree by saying the blessing of Shakol. Yes. Good question. I was just told Christians divorce Judaism. Uh, the original Christians were Jews, but then they, uh, you know, went further and further. Uh, into complete idolatry. Anyone that follows the words of the New Testament is an idol worshiper. There's no, because the, the, the New Testament itself is forbidden. Uh, number one, it's forbidden because it says that God is three and not one. Uh, number two, it contradicts the written Torah. Uh, number four, it is anti-Semitic and against the Jews, especially when it talks about how Jews are the sons of the Satan and all types of other nonsense, or that at the end of days only 144,000 Jews will survive, or you know, only people that worship Yoshke. Uh, but last but not least, it's also uh, prohibited uh, for uh, anyone to start a new religion. So Christianity and Islam are prohibited according to the Torah. The only uh, thing that's allowed in the world is for someone to either be Jewish or a righteous Noahide. No one has a permission to start a new religion. Uh, this is also the reason why, as far as observing Shabbat, uh, if you look at the Rambam on it, for, for, for Noahides, not only are Noahides forbidden from observing Shabbat like Jews on Shabbat, but they're also forbidden from observing Shabbat on any other day. Meaning they can't turn a Tuesday into Shabbat and observe that Tuesday like a Shabbat of a Jew. That's prohibited. Uh, so it's a, because uh, that's creating a new religion. Uh, question, what are your current views on art school, especially yeshiva boys who have learned after a uh, solid few years in yeshiva and want to be able to learn without English? Uh, there are also other pelushim other than Tosfot and Rashi, so you could explain this. I mean, I've discussed art school in the past. I think art school is one of the greatest gifts that was brought to this generation. I think that most yeshiva bachurim today uh, that learn in yeshiva and are not really, really toiling in Torah to the point where they're going to double check, they're going to protect their breed, they're going to work on their midot, they're going to have yirat shamayim, they're going to have yirat uh, uh, of the rabbi, and they're not going to really, really toil like some of these bachurim I know in Israel, uh, but not all of them, just some. Uh, that The average bachur that I've met in America cannot read Gemara without English because more times than not, they arrive at the wrong conclusion. And I've met guys that are even Avrechim in America, still don't know how to, how to, how to read uh, and arrive at the right conclusion, like they would when they would read uh, English. So the point of the Gemara uh, and the entire oral Torah in general is for you to understand what it says. It's not like the written Torah 
the five books of Moses, where there's a special significance of actually uh, uh, reading the words in Hebrew. The Gemara, the main purpose is for you to understand what it says. So if English or French or Spanish or Arabic or whatever other language there is out there is going to help you understand what it says, then certainly it behooves you to read it in that language. Now, if a person wants to read it in Hebrew, Aramaic language of the of the Gemara, by all means, they can. But I would still recommend that when they do arrive at their conclusion, they double check. Unless they have a rabbi in front of them, that's a Talmud Chacham that has completed the Shaz, that knows what he's talking about. Uh, but if they're just studying on their own, I recommend, highly, highly recommend for people to learn from Art Scroll and not from the other types of Gemarot uh, uh, that are out there simply because the Gdolei Israel backed Art Scroll. Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav David Feinstein, uh, uh, many of the Gdolim backed Art Scroll. Uh, some of the other things that are out there, uh, they may have some good things in there, but they were not backed by Gedolei Ador. As Rabbi Akiva says, Am Yisrael is like a dove, and the wings are our Chachamim. If we don't follow our sages, we don't follow our Chachamim, we're, we're a dove without wings, we're going to die. So when you have Gedolei Ador, like the, uh, the Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav David Feinstein, all of the giants, Rav Yashiv, all the giants that backed our art scroll, and you have Tzadikim that have been behind it since day one, uh, why go anywhere else? Now, certainly, Archco has also other things they're developing, such as the Tosfot now they have in English, and they have, uh, they have a, uh, a Chumash with, uh, with, uh, with Gemara in it. They have a lot of different things. If a person simply delved into Torah uh, day and night, they wouldn't finish all the books that Archco has already translated to English anytime in the near future. Needless to say, all the books they haven't translated. So instead of making the language... Uh, such a uh, priority, I would highly recommend for people to make the Torah a priority. And I think that many people lose themselves in the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the language part of it. And, and, and they force themselves to learn in a language they don't understand. And quite frankly, I've met some Bachurim that have got the yeshiva, 17, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, 25 years old. I ask them what you're learning. And this is not one time, two times, five times, or ten times. A bunch of times. I ask them, what are you learning? Oh, I'm learning Gemara such and such. Okay, great. Tell me something about what you're learning. Mm, nothing. Silence. You can hear the silence. Or if they tell you something, it's wrong. More times than not. Of course, once in a while, there's a diamond in a rough, but it's, it's, it, many people simply uh, are not understanding it. They're not understanding it. And, 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 they, uh, and also, quite frankly, the style of learning today is frowned upon by many of Gdolei Israel, uh, Rav Ovadia, Rav El Yashiv, Rav, uh, uh, many of the Chachamim of, of the previous generation uh, were against the way that people learn Gemara today, which is they learn it in such a fashion where it's with, with such a uh, 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 investigation into every word and pilpulim and, and, and going into it that literally it takes them days or months to complete a single page, to complete a single page, which what ends up happening is that they, you know, the average person takes um, two years, three years or more to complete a single masechet. They'll study three, four, five hours just to complete three lines in the Gemara. And they think, oh yeah, I learned Torah today. Bitul Torah, not learning Torah, bitul Torah. I'd be surprised if anybody, if, if anybody's even going to get a mitzvah for what they're doing. Why? Four hours, two lines? Intentionally? Three years, one masechet? After you've already been learning Torah for 10, 15 years? 
When are you going to finish the Shas? When you're, what are you going to live like Metushelach? 1200 years? When are you going to finish the Shas? Go learn, learn the art scroll, uh, unless you're a Biki in the, in the language itself and you understand it like you understand English. Go learn it, understand it, see the commentary, finish the Shas a few times, then learn it with Tosfod. You know, initially you learn it with Rashi. Then after you finish with the Shas a couple of times, you can learn it also with Tosfod, you can learn it with some Rishonim, some Achronim, and so on. But initially, learn it, understand what it says. Learn. No, 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 we're really going and investigating deeply in it. And, and I know it took me two years to finish Masechet Brachot, but I did it with my rabbi, and, and I really understand everything. Okay, buddy. By the way, what's the next Masechet? It's, let's say it's Masechet Shabbat. By the time you get to the half of Masechet Shabbat, which is probably in five years from now, according to that pace, you'll figure out that what you understood in Masechet Brachot was wrong until you got to Masechet Shabbat. And guess what? By the time you get to that same half of Masechet Shabbat, you'll realize that you need to learn Masechet Avodah Zarah in order to understand Masechet Shabbat. But you're not going to get to Masechet Avodah Zarah for another 15 years. Why? Because the Torah is a nervous system. You need everything. And if you take too much time, you're never going to finish. You're never going to know nothing. Never going to know nothing. And guess what? Even by the time you get to that answer in Masechet Sanhedrin or in Masechet Kedush, Masechet Ktubot or anything else that's out there, guess what? That content that you spent two, three, four, five, six, seven thousand years learning, you forgot it already. You forgot it already. This is the reason why there's so many people that Amei Aratzot, even though they've been learning Torah for twenty years of their life, Amei Aratzot, they don't know nothing. They don't know anything. Art scroll is a gift to the generation giving people an ability to learn the pshat in a correct manner and then be able to build upon it as much as you want but first learn the correct foundation correct foundation people are so arrogant they refuse to change where even when Gdoleado spoke against it they don't say nothing Rav Ephraim wrote about it in his, one of his responses in Achtov Yisrael. I think it's Perik uh, Aleph. Yeah, Aleph, I think it is. A, uh, he spoke about it, uh, bringing many sources of how many of the Gdolim were against this, this form of learning that's standard in the world. So what I tell kids that are going to Yeshiva today and their Yeshiva, Rosh Yeshiva, forces them to study uh, in this fashion where it's like, you know, like, a, like a turtle that's reading upside down uh, while he's in the shell. Uh, then uh, listen to the rabbi, do what he says, but as soon as you have a break for lunch, as soon as you have a break for whatever, as soon as you go home, on the way home, open an art scroll, read as much as possible. Learn as much as possible outside of the seder. Why? That's what's going to become you. The stuff you're learning over there is not going to help you in life. Maybe you're going to learn a few things of how to do certain things, but the content, you're never going to get to real significant content. You're never going to finish this which is what's going to end up happening is that you're going to have the, 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 what's happening in the world today. You have a bunch of kids, a bunch of guys, 20, 25, 30 years old, Avrechim in Kolels in America, never completed the Shash one time. But there's Balabatim that work 9 to 5, work 8 to 8, but they study a Daf Yomi. Daf Yomi. They're not obviously going into every detail, but they learn Daf Yomi an hour a day. They finish the Shash every 7 years. So what ends up happening? There's Balabait, goes to the Beknesset, he doesn't have any respect for the rabbi. Why? 
the rabbi is still on Masechet, uh, I don't know, he's on, uh, on Masechet Ta'anit. He's still halfway through the Shas, even though he's already 50, 60 years old. But this Balabai, he finished the Shas. In his mind, he thinks he's bigger than the rabbi. He doesn't realize the rabbi obviously usually learned a lot more than just that, but that's the point. People have to understand. It's, 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 it's necessary for you to learn the entire Talmud multiple times your whole life and the traditional way that's being done today, it is simply not possible. Simply not possible. Art Scroll has enabled people to complete it. If it wasn't for them, I can promise you, many, many tens of thousands of Jews would not even be learning Torah today. Needless to say, finishing the Talmud and, and becoming Talmidei Chachamim and so on. Uh, and, and again, anyone that knows anything about Torah, anything about Torah knows that there are Chachamim from the previous generations that wrote their books in different languages. The Talmud itself, the Talmud itself, you'll see, Talmud itself, part of it is in Aramaic. Why are they write in Aramaic? Why is it all of it in Hebrew? Because the language of the day was Aramaic. Meaning that if the language was so important for you to read it in the holy language, then why is half of it in Aramaic? Let all of it be in Aramaic, or none of it in Aramaic. If the language was so significant, then why did some Chachamim read their, write their books in French, in Arabic, in many other languages? Why? Because when it comes to the Oral Torah, the key is to understand. Understand. Very, very few things outside of the written Torah have to be read in the holy language only. You know, things from the Kabbalah, uh, the the Yad of the Rambam, few things, but generally speaking, the uh, it's it's a known thing that a person needs to read the uh, oral Torah in his first language when it's possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. Uh, I wish that uh, you know Art Scroll and uh, would 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 replicate itself and you know translate every book that uh, that uh, was ever written in any language that's in the Torah. Uh, but, uh, you know, because certainly there's other people that are trying to do something similar, but many times you find that the uh, translations are not reliable or the commentaries they use are not reliable or a combination thereof. Like, for example, I've spoken uh, out against Safaria a few times, even though they provide a service that I think is uh, has benefits to it. They provide a lot of translations that nobody else has translated, but unfortunately... Unless you are somewhat Torah knowledgeable and have Yirat Shemaim, there are certain traps within their, uh, their translations uh, and commentaries that if a person is not aware, they could literally be learning things that are heretical, things that are a part of idolatry. Like in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, they have commentary from Christianity. Uh, in, in other places, they have uh, all types of strange things that are forbidden. Forbidden. Now, of course, majority of what I've seen, uh, you know, is good. But uh, many times there are problems there. So that's, 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 that's the key. Uh, whereas Archcrow, they're from, they're ultra from Jews with Yirat Shamayim. One time I remember I heard a story from them that uh, from one of their founders uh, that uh, there was a person that they hired to, uh, to uh, uh, translate... Um, I don't know. One, it was one of the Sfarim, one of the uh, one of the uh, great uh, books of, of Judaism. I, maybe it was the Prophets or something, something significant. 
And when this person, you know, translated, they paid him, you know, uh, it, was, it was a big job. And then when they got the translation, they saw that he added a few tidbits of his own, as far as the commentary. And in one place, he wrote, Rashi is wrong. Meaning he decided Rashi is wrong. They're from Jews, they're tzaddikim. What do they do? They paid the guy the money, they took his job, they threw it in the garbage. Why? Anyone that says Rashi is wrong clearly does not have Yirat Shamaim, clearly is not someone that you can rely on for anything. Can't learn his Torah, can't read his Torah, can nothing. Why? We have a tradition. Rashi is part of that tradition that is staying there and it's a, without Rashi we cannot take one step right or one step left either in the written Torah or the oral Torah. Rashi is across the entire Talmud. He gave the commentary in the Talmud before even the Tanakh. You cannot even understand a single word without Rashi. Needless to say, in, in, in the Chumash, show me, show me one person that could actually interpret a verse the correct way, you know, without Rashi. It's impossible. Why? Because it's, there's traditions, there's traditions, there's, there's, there's something that uh, people are not, you know, aware of. So the point is, is that the, when someone is willing to lose that much money because they paid the guy and not even tried to edit the work, they just simply threw it out and started all over with somebody else, a whole new payment, meaning that they had to pay double practically or more to get someone with Yirat Shemaim to do the job. When someone is willing to do that and not during the times where they made zillions, we're talking about during the early stages, where we're still struggling to make ends meet, still struggling to paychecks and so on. When you have that kind of Yirat Shamayim, I am happy to learn your Torah, to promote your Torah, to even sit next to them, to even sit next to somebody. It's amazing. Now again, I don't know anybody there on a personal basis. All I know is that it's a gift to the world. I've benefited from, many of my, uh, of my students have benefited from it, and any opportunity that I have, I tell people this is the most reliable translations that I've seen, commentaries that I've seen. And Hashem, I was born in Israel. I was, you know, I, I speak Hebrew, I, uh, so I, I could, you know, uh, understand uh, certain things when I see there's certain issues, there's certain mistakes, there's certain. Uh, I see, and Baruch Hashem, it's a uh, a person that studies art scroll has something to rely on. Is it a? Uh, uh, is it something that uh, a person should should you know give up on just for the sake of building the language? I don't see the benefit in it because either way, even if you learn art school, you're going to end up learning the other languages over time anyway. So I don't see the uh, the the benefit outweighing the uh, you know the, the uh, you know the other benefits of, of actually learning more Torah. Because quite frankly, I see a lot of Bachulim today. So I have students that are with me two, three years. They already know more than them. Guys that are learning Torah, Baruch Hashem, two, three years, know a lot more than some of these Bachurim that are in Kolels. And it's not like, oh, these guys are geniuses. and no, 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 Regular people. Regular people learn every day, commit a few hours a day to learning Torah. Know already more than some of these Bachurim in Yeshivot, more than some of these people that have been learning for 10, 20, 30 years. Why? Again, it's a, uh, I, I think, I think it's, it's a mistake. There's a mistake that's being made. And so uh, you know, this, this creates more uh, people to follow the right footsteps rather than create more, uh, you know, 
Oh, you're against, you're this, you're that. What do I benefit out of it? Do you think I want to get commission out of uh, art school? <laughs> I'm telling you guys to, 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 to learn. As I'm telling you. Okay, wow, we're almost at three hours, guys. Uh, I still have another shield to do in Hebrew. Uh, How can we answer that question? I just found out my genetic roots of a Jewish family tree is DNA. Said that we, we, a Jew is not determined by DNA. It's determined by Allah, the laws. Uh, question. Is it simply a lack of fear of Hashem if one falls to their desire even though they know it's a sin? Or is there something else lacking in that person who sins knowingly and could not control themselves? Uh, well, it's certainly a lack of fear of Hashem. And it is also a, uh, a certain uh, lust that they have for something. It's both. Of course, if they had the right amount of fear of Hashem, they wouldn't even move the wrong way. Uh, but we're not on that level. So uh, they uh, also have to overcome some of these other things. Okay, guys. I need to contain myself a little bit, even though I would love to stay with you guys and, and learn some more. Uh, I think that I need to rest a little bit before my next shoe. If I didn't have another shoe, I'd probably go on for a little longer. You guys are asking good questions. Okay, no, another question. Uh, to my understanding, Rami Zrahi, from someone I heard, says it's allowed. It's confusing. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. So I think I... Uh, I think I did answer all the questions. Uh, where to donate? Uh, donate on uh, bezatashem.org or bhyeshiva.org or bhdonate.org or genome.org or genome.com or donate on the Facebook page. Or you could actually also, by the way, donate on YouTube now. You could donate on YouTube. You could also even send like a subscription fee, but it's not really a subscription. It's just a donation that's that's monthly for 20 bucks or 50 bucks, whatever. And you get little uh, gifts for it or something like that, different stickers. And you could even donate on YouTube. You could donate on our app. There's plenty of ways to donate if you really want to donate, uh, if you want to donate by sending a check. Uh, I always tell people it's best to donate online instead of sending checks because if you have the... Desire to do a mitzvah, the sooner the better. Rather than sending a check and waiting for the mail and changing your mind and all types of things. The sooner the better. It's worth the extra few percentage points. It's worth it. Uh, okay, all right. I think I did answer actually, Baruch Hashem, all the questions because I see some of these other questions I haven't answered. They, they were answered in the shiur itself. Okay, Tiskuli Mitzvot Rabot. Thank you again for learning with me. Hashem Mevarechotchem Bekol Mikol Kol Chaim Aukim Shlemim Meleim Torah Mitzvot Minut Chasadim Nachat Ubacha. Again, reminder for anybody that donates uh, in the Genom campaign, we'll enter this campaign where we'll, uh, somebody's going to win a fancy, schmancy, beautiful talit uh, like I have. And uh, Or if anybody wants to buy it, they can go on the website and uh, buy one for themselves. Okay, Bacha Vaslacha. Thank you for learning with me. Tiskuli Mitzvot Rabot. Kotuv. Just now, once you cross that threshold, there is only
There was a rich family that lived here called the Hetheringtons, and unfortunately, their daughter passed away of a heart attack inside the house. Basically, they were so devastated that they reached out to people claiming to be psychic mediums. They actually weren't psychic mediums. They opened up a total of 11 portals inside this house and invited spirits and entities from all different kinds of dimensions. Well, I think there are certain pieces of evidence that there is an afterlife. Resurrection of the dead is affirmed uh, pretty clearly uh, in the Talmud and the Midrash. To be honest with you, to give this lecture is a nightmare. If it was up to me, I wouldn't. It's going to be some graphic details. This place is a maze. The person after death went to a place called Sheol. This is by far the largest near-death experience study that has ever been conducted. People go to a place and they experience weird things. And sometimes they actually will see a character of some type. Well, where did that come from? describe feeling profoundly peaceful, seeing a bright, warm, welcoming light. Some people describe watching doctors and nurses working on them with incredible accuracy. Next thing I knew, I was above my body watching the operation. How long did you feel like you were gone? I went to a place of timelessness. And so what that means, it could have been a second, it could have been five minutes. I don't know. Can you imagine waking up from your sleep and not being able to move? As I'm lying there, I realize that there's a, an evil presence next to me. Do you believe that angels, demons exist? Holy shit, get out of here! Oh my god, dude! Strange things keep happening. Bizarre nightmares, as if I'm on fire. Whoa, what the hell is this? Man, I've got bad chest pain. Satan's Hollow is what it's called, the portal to hell. Some people calling it an eye of fire, while others said it looked like the portal to hell opening up. And the next thing I know, I was outside of my body, looking at my body. What I'm going to do is called claromancy, the art of throwing lots or throwing bones. 2,000 years of experience, passed down, recorded, of how demons work. God has them all on a leash, and he lets the leash go enough to let them tempt us, because that's what makes us spiritually stronger. I'm trying to be as graphic as possible so you understand what we're talking about. It's your ticket to reality. It's your ticket to freedom. It's your ticket to immortality. Is there an afterlife? Is there a it's God? It's the type of information that can keep you away from the outside. What happens to us after we die? 